Surah 9, At-Tawbah, Medinan period. Title, This surah has two titles, At-Tawbah and Al-Bara'ah. The former title owes its origin to the reference in the surah to God's pardoning of lapses committed by some believers. See verse 117, and the latter title to the public dissolution of all treaty obligations with the polytheists mentioned in the opening verse of the surah. It is noteworthy that the usual opening formula, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of Allah the Compassionate, the Merciful, is not prefixed to this surah. Commentators on the Quran have attributed a number of different reasons for this. Of these, the explanation given by Fakhruddin al-Razi seems to be the most plausible. As the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not direct his scribes to prefix the formula, his companions and successors also omitted it. Succeeding generations similarly adhere to the omission. This demonstrates how the Muslims painstakingly sought to receive the Quranic text from the Prophet, peace be upon him, exactly as it was revealed and the care which they took to preserve it in its pristine form. Period of Revelation and Contents This surah comprises three discourses. The first discourse runs from the opening verse to the fifth section of the surah. It was revealed in or around Zulqada 9 after Hijri 631 CE, soon after the Prophet, peace be upon him, dispatched Abu Bakr as the leader of the pilgrims to Mecca. After the verses had been revealed, the Prophet, peace be upon him, instructed Ali to follow Abu Bakr and to recite the same verses, proclaiming the new directives embodied in them before a representative gathering of Arabs who had gone there for pilgrimage. The second discourse covers sections 6 to 9 of the Surah. It was revealed in or around Rajab 9 after Hijri, 631 CE, when the Prophet, peace be upon him, was busy making his preparations for an expedition to Tabuk. The discourse seeks to arouse the believers to wage jihad and reproaches severely those who, out of hypocrisy or infirmity of their faith, or out of sheer sloth and laziness, were reluctant to risk their lives and wealth in God's cause. Beginning with section 10, verse 73, the third discourse runs up to the end of the surah. Revealed upon the Prophet's return from the Tabuk expedition, it consists of several fragments which were revealed on different occasions during that period, and which under God's own instruction were arranged by the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the form of a coherent discourse. Since all these fragments center around a common subject and are related to the same set of events, any incongruity does not arise. The third discourse warns the hypocrites about their misdeeds and strongly censures those who, on the occasion of the expedition to Tabuk, had stayed behind. The verses also embody a combination of reproach and pardon for the believers who, even though they were sincere in their faith, had abstained from waging jihad in God's cause. Chronologically, the first discourse should have come at the end of the surah. However, in view of the significance of its contents, the Prophet, peace be upon him, in arranging the Quranic text, placed it at the beginning of the surah. Historical Background Having discussed the surah's period of revelation, let us now look at its historical setting. The contents of the surah are related to events arising from the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, 6 after Hijri, 628 CE. 
By the time this treaty was concluded, the struggle which had carried on for six long years had begun to bear fruit and Islam had emerged as the basis of an organized society, the inspiring force of a distinct cultural entity, and the guiding principle of a fully-fledged sovereign state. The relatively peaceful atmosphere created by the Treaty of Hudaybiyah enabled Islam to propagate its teachings far and wide. The subsequent course of events followed two quite different directions but led to dire consequences. One of these concerned Arabia and the other the Byzantine Empire. A number of effective measures were taken by the Muslims after the conclusion of the treaty to propagate Islam and consolidate and reinforce Muslim power. The result was that within a period of two years, Islam had spread considerably and had become so immensely powerful that in comparison to Islam, the age-old Jahiliya of Arabia was reduced to an utterly ineffectual position. Eventually, when the more zealous members of the Quraysh found themselves on the verge of defeat, they lost all patience and broke the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. By so doing, they wanted to free themselves from the constraints of the treaty and prepare for a decisive encounter with Islam. The Prophet, peace be upon him, however, did not allow the Quraysh to seize the initiative. Launching a sudden attack on Makkah in Ramadan, 8 after Hijri, 629 CE, he was able to seize it. See Surah 8, note 43 above. Later, the ancient Jahiliya of Arabia resorted to desperate acts of belligerency. On the occasion of the Battle of Hunan, other tribes loyal to Jahiliya mustered their military forces together in a bid to prevent the spread of Islam's reformative revolution, which, after the capture of Mecca, had almost reached its zenith. Their efforts, however, came to naught, and their defeat made it abundantly evident that Arabia was destined to become and remain Darul Islam. Hardly one year had passed after the Battle of Hunan than the greater part of Arabia entered the fold of Islam. The power of Jahiliya lay shattered. Only a few opponents remained in the arena, and the ones that could still be found lay scattered across the peninsula, unable to wield any mentionable influence. Events which took place on the borders of the Byzantine Empire in the north contributed to this trend. The Prophet, peace be upon him, showed exceptional courage when he led a 30,000-strong force against the Byzantine army. By contrast, the Byzantine forces demonstrated timidity insofar as they chose to avoid armed conflict with the Muslims. As a result, both the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his faith were held in awe throughout Arabia. Upon the Prophet's return from Tabuk, delegation after delegation poured into Medina from every corner of the peninsula embracing Islam and committing themselves to obey the Prophet, peace be upon him. This development has been portrayed in the Qur'an in the following words. When there comes to you help from Allah and victory and you see people enter the religion of Allah in crowds, An-Nasr 110-1-2 Conflict with the Byzantine Empire had begun even before the conquest of Mecca. After the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Prophet, peace be upon him, sent many delegations to different parts of Arabia calling people to Islam. One such delegation went to the tribes inhabiting land close to the Syrian border in the north. These tribes were mainly Christians and were largely under the influence of the Byzantine Empire. 
they put fifteen members of the delegation to the sword at a place called Zat al-Thala, or Zat Atla. Only the leader of the delegation, Gab ibn Umar al-Ghifari, managed to return home safely. Around the same period, the Prophet, peace be upon him, sent an envoy, Harith ibn Umar, to Shurahbil ibn Amr, the chief of Busra, in order to communicate to him the message of Islam. Shurabil, who was both a tribal chief and a satrap of the Byzantine Empire, was responsible for the assassination of the Prophet's envoy, Harith. In these circumstances, the Prophet, peace be upon him, sent a 3,000-strong army of devotees towards the Syrian border in Jumad al-Awwal, 8 after Hijri, 629. This action was intended to secure the area for the Muslims and to deter the opponents of Islam from committing excesses against them should they mistakenly consider that the Muslims lacked strength. When the army approached Ma'an, reports were received that Shurabil was advancing towards them with a hundred thousand strong army. Reports were also received that the Caesar of Rome was himself present at hymns and that he had dispatched reinforcements to the tune of another hundred thousand under the command of his younger brother, Theodore. Against all odds, the three thousand strong Muslim contingent continued to advance and clashed with Shurabil's army, a hundred thousand strong at Mota. The expected outcome of such an encounter was not hard to imagine, the total extermination of the Muslim force. What happened, however, was quite different. It came as a shock to the whole of Arabia and the Middle East that the Romans failed to gain the upper hand even though they outnumbered the Muslims by 33 to 1. It was this which aroused many people's initial interest in Islam. Ultimately, many thousands of people from the semi-independent Arab tribes living in Syria and its adjoining areas from the Najdi tribes that inhabited the regions not far from Iraq and who were under the influence of Khosros, converted to Islam. People from the tribes of Sulaim, whose head was Abbas bin Mirdas al-Sulami, of Ashja, of Ghatfan, of Dubian, of Fazara, also chose at this stage to embrace Islam. Farwa ibn Amr al-Judami, an Arab commander of the Byzantine army, also embraced Islam and inspired awe among the enemies of Islam by the fervor of his faith. When Caesar came to know that Farwa had embraced Islam, he had him arrested. He was given a clear choice between continued adherence to Islam, in which case he would be put to the sword, and renunciation of Islam, in which case he would continue to live and have his office restored to him. Calmly and confidently, he chose Islam, laying down his life for the sake of truth. Incidents such as these alerted Caesar to the gravity of the menace that was steadily advancing towards the Byzantine Empire. In an attempt to avenge himself for the Battle of Mota, Caesar ordered military preparations to commence on the Syrian border of the following year. Joining their forces with Caesar, the chiefs of the Ghassanid and other Arab tribes began to muster their troops. The Prophet, peace be upon him, was ever vigilant and kept himself abreast of all developments which had any bearing on his mission. He immediately understood the implications of Caesar's military preparations and promptly decided to challenge this mighty army on the battlefield. Any show of weakness on the part of the Muslims 
would have been disastrous. On the one hand, it might have given a fresh lease of life to the dying forces of Arabian Jahiliyyah, which had been dealt a crushing blow at Hunan. On the other hand, any demonstration of weakness might have encouraged the hypocrites to cause serious damage to Islam from within. For the hypocrites were in touch with the Ghazanid Christian prince and with Caesar himself through Abu Amir. Under the garb of religious piety, they actively worked to achieve their sinister purposes and had even built a mosque, the Mosque of Dirar, in the vicinity of Medina which served as their operational base. Also, Caesar himself, whose morale was also high at the time for he had just then defeated the Persians, could have been prompted to mount an attack. If these three forces were to join hands and unitedly attack the Muslims, they could well turn the tables against them. The Muslims could lose what then seemed to be a winning battle. Alive to these facts and realizing the gravity of the situation, the Prophet, peace be upon him, publicly appealed to the Muslims to prepare for war against one of the two superpowers. He did so even though there prevailed near-famine conditions in Arabia. The scorching heat of the summer was at its peak. The harvest season had just about arrived, and there was a conspicuous shortage of material resources needed to wage a war. On similar previous occasions, the usual practice of the Prophet, peace be upon him, had been not to disclose such strategic information beforehand. For instance, the direction in which he would move and the enemy with whom he would engage. In fact, whenever he left Medina on a military expedition, it was his practice to conceal his intent by following an unusual route to the battlefield. On this occasion, however, he did not conceal his intent and declared that the Romans were his target and that he would advance towards Syria. The gravity of the situation was felt by everyone in Arabia. For the remaining devotees of Jahiliyyah, the encounter between Islam and the Byzantine Empire offered them a last ray of hope and they looked forward to its outcome eagerly. The hypocrites also fully expected the Romans to strike a deadly blow against Islam. From their base, the Mosque of Dirar, they looked forward to the future eagerly, hoping that the outcome of the battle would afford them an opportunity to play their sinister game with impunity. Hence, they spared no effort in their attempts to undermine the Muslim military plans. Sincere Muslims also realized that the cause for which they had been striving for the last 22 years was at stake. They knew well that valiant action could open the door to Islam's ascendancy over the whole world. Conversely, any lapse on their part might seal Islam's fate even in Arabia. Moved by such thoughts, they responded fervently to the Prophet's call and commenced their war preparations, each Muslim contributing much more than his financial means warranted. Huge amounts of money were donated by Uthman bin Affan and Abdurrahman bin Auf. Umar contributed half of all his belongings, whereas Abu Bakr placed all that he possessed at the feet of the Prophet, peace be upon him. In the same spirit, companions with low incomes brought their hard-earned wages and donated them to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Women generously donated their jewelry to the war fund. Moved by the zeal to fight in God's cause, thousands of Muslims flocked to Medina from far and wide and expressed their readiness to sacrifice their lives. Those who could not be included in the Muslim army because of the acute paucity of cavalry and other war provisions wept bitterly and lamented their exclusion so pathetically that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was moved. 
The occasion, in fact, served as a touchstone for distinguishing the sincere from the insincere, the true men of faith from the hypocrites. <clears throat> the moment was so crucial for Islam that not going to the battlefront revealed the hollowness of a man's claim to believe in Islam. Accordingly, whenever the Prophet, peace be upon him, was informed during his journey to Tabuk that someone had decided to stay behind, he spontaneously said, Let him alone. If there is any good in him, God will reunite him with you. And if it is otherwise, then thank God that he relieved you of him. In the month of Rajab, nine after Hijri, the Prophet, peace be upon him, along with 30,000 soldiers of whom only 1,000 were mounted, marched towards Syria. Camels were so few that the soldiers had to take turns to ride them. The blazing heat of the summer and the scarcity of water added to their hardship. On this occasion, the Muslims displayed a singular firmness of mind in enduring all hardships, for which they were amply rewarded upon their arrival at Tabuk. When the Muslims reached their destination, they learned that Caesar and his tributaries had moved their troops away from the borders and that there was consequently no enemy with whom they could fight. The writers of the Sita works Biographies of the Prophet mention that this incident in a manner which suggests that upon reaching Tabuk it was found that the reports which the Prophet peace be upon him had received about the concentration of troops on the Syrian-Arabian border were false. The fact, however, is that Caesar had indeed begun amassing his troops on the border. He had to abandon the idea of an encounter and withdrew his army because the Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived ahead of the anticipated time, and well before the planned concentration of troops had been completed. Caesar had not forgotten that the Muslims had given a very good account of themselves earlier on the battlefield at Mota, and despite the overwhelming odds against them. Hence, Caesar did not dare confront the 30,000-strong army of Muslims, especially when it was led by the Prophet, peace be upon him himself. He would probably have still been reluctant to engage in battle, even if he had mustered a 100,000 or 200,000-strong army. The Prophet, peace be upon him, was satisfied with the advantages accruing from this moral victory. Instead of pushing on any further, he chose to derive maximum political and strategic advantage from the incident. He stayed in Tabuk for twenty days, and by exerting military pressure, was able to make several buffer states which had so far been under the hegemony of the Byzantine Empire, agree to become tributaries of the Islamic State, and so resign themselves to vassal status. In this connection, mention should be made of some notable chiefs. Uqadir bin Abdul Malik al-Kindi of Dumat al-Jandal, Yuhana bin Ruba of Ayla, and of the Christian chiefs of Makna, Jarba, and Adru, who agreed to pay the poll tax and accepted to live under the hegemony of Medina. The result was that the Islamic State now extended to the borders of the Byzantine Empire. In addition, a good number of Arab tribes whom successive Caesars had exploited against other Arabs crossed over to the Islamic side, offering their support to the Muslims as opposed to the Romans. This proved highly advantageous insofar as it enabled the Muslims to consolidate their position in Arabia before launching upon a prolonged conflict with the Romans.
This bloodless victory at Tabuk shattered the power of both the unbelievers and the hypocrites who had looked forward to a revival of the ancient Jahiliya of Arabia. In sheer desperation, a great number of them saw that the only reasonable course left open to them was to enter the fold of Islam. Even though some of them lacked inner conviction, their entrance into the fold of Islam ensured the assimilation of their forthcoming generations to Islam. The few diehard unbelievers that remained loyal to polytheism and jahiliya were so enfeebled that they no longer constituted a serious obstacle to the completion of the reformatory revolution for which God had raised His Messenger, peace be upon Him. Subject Matter if we bear this background in mind, it will help us appreciate more fully the major issues of the hour which the Surah seeks to treat. 1. Since the believers had by then gained full control over Arabia and the forces against Islam lay crushed, it was necessary to proclaim the transformation of Arabia into a fully-fledged Dar al-Islam. The following represent the salient features of that strategy. A. Polytheism and all its offshoots should be absolutely obliterated from Arabia in order to ensure that the land would always remain the exclusive base of Islam, a land where no extraneous ideologies would be allowed to impair the purity of Islamic belief and practice, nor any non-Islamic elements allowed to create subversion. It was for this reason that a proclamation of total disassociation from the unbelievers was made, and all agreements and treaties previously concluded with them were publicly annulled. B. Since the believers were now in control of the Kaaba, it was considered altogether inappropriate to allow polytheistic practices to continue in the shrine which was originally consecrated for the worship of the one true God. It was therefore proclaimed that the Kaaba should henceforth be placed under the exclusive charge of the believers and all practices rooted in polytheism and jahiliya should be forcibly extirpated from the precincts of the house of God. It was also proclaimed that the polytheists should no longer even be permitted to approach the Kaaba. This was done to rule out the possibility of any further sacrilege of God's house built by the prophet Abraham, peace be upon him. C. It was also considered highly inappropriate for any vestige of pre-Islamic polytheistic custom to be allowed to continue under the new Islamic dispensation. Attention was, therefore, drawn to their eradication. Of these, the hideous practice of Nasi, the transposing of a prohibited month, was forthwith forbidden. This was to serve as an example for Muslims to do away with all vestiges of Jahiliya. 2. Once the objectives of the mission of Islam had been fulfilled within the peninsula, the next step was to spread the message outside Arabia. The Byzantine and Sassanid empires, the two mighty powers of the day, would be the major obstacles. A confrontation was therefore inevitable. Similar encounters with other non-Islamic political and social systems of the day would also be imminent at a later stage. In pursuit of their goal, the Muslims were directed, if necessary, by force to put an end to all sovereign political entities which refused to submit to the truth and to force non-Muslims to live under the suzerainty of Islam. Muslims were taught to recognize the right of non-Muslims either to embrace Islam or reject it.
The Muslims did not, however, recognize that non-Muslims had the right to enforce the laws of their choice in opposition to the divine law of God on earth as it is created by God and to thrust their errors and wrongdoings upon generation after generation by keeping the reins of power in their hands. At the most, they may be allowed to persist in their ignorance if they so wished. They could do so, however, only if they paid jizya, poll tax, and remained subservient to the Islamic State. 3. The third serious problem was presented by the hypocrites who so far had been treated leniently. However, since pressure from hostile forces from without had considerably relaxed, in some instances ceased altogether, the Qur'an declared that henceforth no leniency ought to be shown them. These hidden enemies of Islam should be treated with the same severity as the open deniers of Islam. In line with this policy and during the preparations for the Tabuk expedition, the Prophet, peace be upon him, arranged for Suvelim's house where a group of hypocrites had assembled to discuss their plans for dissuading the Muslims from joining the expedition to Tabuk to be set ablaze. Again, it was in keeping with the same policy that as soon as the Prophet, peace be upon him, returned from Tabuk, he demolished and set ablaze Masjid Dirar. 4. It also seemed necessary to strengthen the faith of the true believers in order that any weakness in their determination might be eradicated. This was essential as the mission of Islam was about to enter its universal phase in which one single entity, Muslim Arabia, would be arrayed against the entire non-Muslim world. At such a stage in its development, there could be no greater menace to Islam than the weakness of the faith of its followers. Accordingly, anyone who on the eve of the Tabuk expedition had either neglected or slackened off in his duty was severely reproached. Any lagging behind without legitimate cause was considered beyond any doubt evidence of hypocrisy, a sign of not having true faith. It was stated, therefore, unequivocally, that participation in the struggle to exalt the word of Allah and in the conflict between Islam and unbelief would henceforth be considered the basic criterion of a person's faith. Whoever was found to be slack in his efforts to sacrifice his life, wealth, and resources in Islam's cause would no longer be regarded as genuine and none of his acts, no matter how pious he might otherwise be, would compensate for this slackness. Baraatum min Allahi wa Rasulihi ila alladhina ahadtum min al-mushrikeen. This is a declaration of disavowal by Allah and His Messenger to those who associate others with Allah in His divinity and with whom you have made treaties. This is a declaration of disavowal. As we have mentioned before, the first discourse, verses 1 to 37, were revealed in 9 after Hijri, 631 CE, at a time when the Prophet, peace be upon him, had already sent Abu Bakr as leader of the pilgrims to perform Hajj. Since these verses were revealed during Abu Bakr's absence, the companions in Medina asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, to have them conveyed to Abu Bakr with the instruction that they may be recited publicly during the Hajj. The Prophet, peace be upon him, however, decided that the verses should be recited on his behalf by someone from his own family. 
Accordingly, he entrusted the task to Ali and directed him that not only should he publicly recite the verses concerned, but should also make the following proclamation on that occasion. 1. That no one who refuses to accept Islam would enter paradise. 2. That no polytheist would henceforth be allowed to perform Hajj. 3. That naked circumambulation around the Kaaba, a pre-Islamic Arabian practice, would henceforth be forbidden. 4. That the treaties concluded between the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the unbelievers, which were still in force since the other party had not broken them, would be honored until the expiry of their terms. It's worth noting that the first Hajj of the Islamic era after the conquest of Mecca in 8 after Hijri 630 CE was performed largely in accordance with the then prevalent practices. However, in 9 after Hijri 631 CE, the Muslims performed the second Hajj according to the rules prescribed by Islam, whereas the polytheists performed it according to their own customs. It was in 10 after Hijri, 632 CE, that the third Hajj, more commonly known as the Hajjat al-Wada, the farewell pilgrimage, was performed in a purely Islamic manner. The Prophet, peace be upon him, did not perform the first two pilgrimages. He did, however, lead the third Hajj when polytheism had been fully extirpated. And with whom you have made treaties? The Quran had already laid down the rule. If you fear treachery from any group, then publicly throw their covenant at them, for Allah does not love the treacherous. 8.58 Thus the Muslims were required to publicly terminate their treaties before they engaged in hostilities with groups whom they feared would violate those agreements. To take up arms against a people with whom one is bound by a treaty without its annulment is tantamount to treachery and as such does not become the Muslims. This Quranic principle also applied to those tribes that, despite their treaties, had constantly conspired against and were openly hostile to Islam whenever the opportunity presented itself. This was very much the attitude of all the polytheistic tribes, with the notable exception of Banu Kinana and the Banu Damra, and perhaps of a couple of other lesser-known tribes. This public disassociation with polytheism and its adherence by the Qur'an amounted to the outlawing of polytheism and polytheists in Arabia. The polytheists thereafter had no shelter in the land since the greater part of Arabia had come under Islam's sway. The polytheists looked ever for an opportunity such as the threat of the invasion of the Islamic State by the Byzantines or the Sassanids or of the possible death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to violate their treaties and to fling the Islamic realm into civil war and anarchy. However, God and his messenger had turned the tables on them before they had the chance. The public annulment of the treaties presented the polytheists with three alternatives. They could either come out into the open and engage in conflict with the Islamic State, which would have led to their total extinction. They could flee from Arabia, or they could embrace Islam and submit themselves and the lands which they controlled to the Islamic State. The wisdom of this action can be better appreciated if one considers the level of denunciation which broke out in different parts of Arabia in less than two years after the Prophet's death, and which jolted the very foundation of the newly established Islamic order. 
had this declaration of nine after Hijri, 631 CE not struck a death blow to the forces of polytheism, and had the Islamic order not been firmly entrenched, the movement of apostasy which arose in the early days of Abu Bakr's caliphate would have surfaced earlier and been more forceful. It might also have led to a much fiercer civil war and rebellion, and the course of Islamic history might well have been different altogether. فَسِيحُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ أَرْبَعَةَ أَشْهُرٍ وَاعْلَمُوا أَنَّكُمْ غَيْرُ مُعْجِزِ اللَّهِ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ مُخْزِ الْكَافِرِينَ You may go about freely in the land for four months, but know well that you will not be able to frustrate Allah. and that Allah will bring disgrace upon those who deny the truth. You may go about freely in the land for four months. This proclamation was made on the 10th of Dhul-Hijjah, 9 after Hijri, 631 CE. The polytheists were granted a respite of four months, concluding on the 10th Rabi'a level, 10 after Hijri, 631 CE. They were thus offered the opportunity to take stock of their situation. If they decided that they should fight it out, they could do so. Similarly, they could choose either to leave the land or after careful consideration, embrace Islam. وَأَذَانٌ مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ إِلَى النَّاسِ يَوْمَ الْحَجِّ الْأَكْبَرِ أَنَّ اللَّهَ بَرِيءٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ وَرَسُولُهُ فَإِن تُبْتُمْ فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ وَإِن تَوَلَّيْتُمْ فَاعْلَمُوا أَنَّكُمْ غَيْرُ مُعْجِزِ اللَّهِ وَبَشِّرِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِعَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ This is a public proclamation by Allah and His Messenger to all people on the day of the great pilgrimage. Allah is free from all obligation to those who associate others with Allah in His divinity. And so is His Messenger. If you repent, it shall be for your own good. But if you turn away, then know well that you will not be able to frustrate Allah. So give glad tidings of a painful chastisement to those who disbelieve, to all people on the day of the great pilgrimage. The tenth of Dhul-Hijjah is known as Yom al-Nahir, the day of sacrifice. According to authentic traditions, the Prophet, peace be upon him, asked the audience on the occasion of Hajjat al-Wada, the farewell pilgrimage, which day is it? They replied, it is Yom al-Nahir, the day of sacrifice. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said, This is Yawm al-Hajj al-Akbar, the day of greater pilgrimage. It is in contrast to al-Hajj al-Asghar, that is Umrah or minor pilgrimage, that the pilgrimage performed on the appointed dates in the month of Zulhijjah is called the greater pilgrimage. Those 
in exception to those who associate others with Allah in His divinity, are those with whom you have made treaties and who have not violated their treaties, nor have backed up anyone against you. Fulfill your treaties with them till the end of their term. Surely, Allah loves the pious. Fulfill your treaties with them till the end of their term. Surely, Allah loves the pious. The Muslims were directed to maintain agreements with those who had not been guilty of violating agreements with them. Any act which contravened this idea would not be God-fearing and Muslims should abstain from it since God loves those who fear Him. فَإِذَا سَلَخَ الْأَشْهُرُ الْحُرُمُ فَقُتُلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ وَخُذُوهُمْ وَاحْصُرُوهُمْ وَقْعُدُوا لَهُمْ كُلَّ مَرْصَدٍ فَإِن تَابُوا وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَآتَوُوا الزَّكَاةَ فَخَلُّوا سَبِيلَهُمْ But when the sacred months expire, slay those who associate others with Allah in His divinity, wherever you find them, seize them and besiege them, and lie in wait for them. But if they repent and establish the prayer and pay zakah, leave them alone. Surely, Allah is all-forgiving, ever-merciful. But when the sacred months expire, the expression sacred months in the above verse means something rather different from its usual understanding, whereby fighting during those four months was prohibited. Here the expression refers merely to the four months of respite granted to the polytheists. Since it was not lawful for Muslims to attack the polytheists during those months, they were characterized as hurum, sacred prohibited. But if they repent and establish the prayer and pay zakah, leave them alone. Apart from a disavowal of unbelief in polytheism, the Muslims are required to establish prayers and pay zakah. Without these, their claim that they had abandoned unbelief and embraced Islam would have no credence. Abu Bakr referred to this verse as the basis of his action in response to the movement of apostasy during his reign. A group of those who had launched a rebellious movement against Islam after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, contended that they had not renounced Islam and were even prepared to observe the prayers. They were not prepared, however, to pay zakah. Many of the companions were puzzled as to how the sword could be unleashed against a people who claimed to profess Islam and observe prayers. Abu Bakr referred to the above verse which enjoins Muslims to allow such polytheists to have their way provided they give up polytheism, establish prayers, and pay zakah. However, the injunction would not apply if they failed to fulfill any of these three conditions. وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ أَبْلِغْهُ مَأْمَنَهُ ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ قَوْمٌ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ And if any of those who associate others with Allah in His divinity seeks asylum, Grant him asylum, that he may hear the word of Allah, and then escort him to safety. For they are a people bereft of all understanding. For they are a people bereft of all understanding. If during the war any enemy expresses the desire to learn about Islam, the Muslims should provide him asylum, allow him to come to their land, and help him understand their religion.
Thereafter, if he decides not to accept Islam, they should escort him to wherever he wishes to go. In Islamic legal terminology, the person who enters Dar al-Islam under its protection is called Musta'min. كيف يكون للمشركين عهد عند الله وعند رسوله إلا الذين عاهدتم عند المسجد الحرام فما استقاموا لكم فاستقيموا لهم إن الله يحب المتقين How can there be a covenant with those who associate others with Allah in His divinity be binding upon Allah and His Messenger, excepting those with whom you made a covenant near the sacred mosque? Behave in a straight manner with them, so long as they behave with you in a straight manner, for Allah loves the God-fearing, excepting those with whom you made a covenant near the sacred mosque. This alludes to the Kinana, Khuzaha, and Damra tribes. كَيْفَ وَإِنْ يَظْهَرُوا عَلَيْكُمْ لَا يَرْقُبُوا فِيكُمْ إِلَّا وَلَا ذِمَّةٌ يُرْضُونَكُمْ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ وَتَأْبَى قُلُوبُهُمْ وَأَكْثَرُهُمْ فَاسِقُونَ How can there be any covenant with the other polytheists? For were they to prevail against you, they will respect neither kinship nor agreement. They seek to please you with their tongues, while their hearts are averse to you, and most of them are wicked. While their hearts are averse to you. Although the unbelievers negotiated a peace treaty with the Muslims, their hearts were nevertheless full of treachery. Their intentions were borne out by their deeds for whenever they concluded a treaty, it was apparent that they had done so only with the intention of breaking it. And most of them are wicked. The unbelievers had neither consideration either for their moral obligations, nor had any compunction in their transgressions. اشتروا بآيات الله ثمنا قليلا فصدوا عن سبيله إنهم ساء ما كانوا يعملون. They have sold the revelations of Allah for a paltry price and have firmly hindered people from His path. Evil indeed is what they have done. They have sold the revelations of Allah for a paltry price. On the one hand, the Book of God invited the unbelievers to virtuous conduct, to righteousness, and to the observance of divine law. On the other hand, the worldly life offered them ephemeral benefits, which they expected to gain by giving a free, unbridled rein to their lusts. On comparing the two, they preferred the latter to the former, and have firmly hindered people from His path. Not only did these wicked people choose error in preference to true guidance, they even had the brazenness to try to obstruct the spread of the truth, to prevent people from responding to righteousness. They tried to gag the mouths of those who invited people to the truth. In short, they spared nothing in their efforts to prevent the establishment of a righteous way of life. They sought to make life extremely difficult for those who, convinced of the truth of their way of life, tried to sincerely follow it. لا يرقبون في مؤمن إلا ولا ذم 
They neither have any respect for kinship nor for agreement in respect of the believers. Such are indeed transgressors. But if they repent and establish prayer and give zakah, they are your brothers in faith. Thus do we expound our revelations to those who know. Thus do we expound our revelations to those who know. This reiterates the statement that if the repentance of the unbelievers is not accompanied by the establishment of prayers and the payment of zakah, then they would not be considered as part of the Islamic fraternity on the grounds of their mere repentance. As to the Quranic statement that they would become brethren in faith, it means that if they fulfill their requisite conditions, it would no longer be permissible for Muslims to fight against them, and also that their lives and property would become sacred. Moreover, they would be entitled to enjoy equal rights in the Islamic society. They would be treated like other Muslims in all social and legal matters, nor would they be discriminated against in any way, nor any obstacles placed in front of them which might impede their progress in achieving what they might be capable of achieving. But if they break their pledges after making them and attack your faith, Make war on the leaders of unbelief, that they may desist, for they have no regard for their pledged words. For they have no regard for their pledged words. It appears from the context that the expression, their oaths, stands here for their repudiation of unbelief and so their acceptance of Islam. For in view of their previous record of treaty violation, it was simply out of the question for any new treaty to be concluded with them. In fact, their persistent violation of such treaties had brought about the proclamation from God and His Messenger that all treaties with them be annulled. See verse 1 above. The Qur'an unequivocally declares that no treaty may be concluded with such people. The only way for such persons to be let alone was if they renounce unbelief and polytheism and perform the duties of prayer and zakah. This verse also contains a clear injunction with regard to apostasy. The verse does in fact hint at the apostasy movement that was to break out after a year and a half of Abu Bakr's caliphate. In dealing with apostates, Abu Bakr acted on the directive set forth in the present verse.
Will you not fight against those who broke their pledges and did all they could to drive the messenger away and initiated hostilities against you? Do you fear them? Surely, Allah has greater right that you should fear Him if you are true believers. Will you not fight against those who broke their pledges? From here on, the discourse is directed to the Muslims who are exhorted to wage war and to disregard worldly interests, blood ties, and everything else in matters relating to faith. For a fuller appreciation of the true spirit of this part of the discourse, one should take into account the circumstances which then confronted the Muslims. At that time, Islam had no doubt gained such an ascendancy that no power in Arabia could challenge its supremacy. To the superficial eye, it might well have seemed highly dangerous to nullify all agreements with the unbelievers for the following reasons. A. It was feared that doing many things at once, the annulment of treaties with polytheistic tribes, the ban of polytheists from performing pilgrimage, the transference of custody of the Kaaba to the Muslims, and the total abolition of the evil practices of the time of ignorance would be dangerous. It was feared that these steps might inflame even the polytheists and hypocrites into a decisive encounter against the Muslims in their attempts to defend their interests and their inherited way of life. B. The decision to institute Hajj as an exclusively Muslim religious rite and to ban the polytheists from entering the Kaaba was, for the polytheists, highly controversial. This step not only offended the religious feelings of a vast section of the Arabian population, but was also detrimental to their economic interests for Mecca was the center of the Arabs' economic life. C. It was also feared that the declaration would put the faith of those who had embraced Islam after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the conquest of Mecca to a severe test as many of their kith and kin still professed polytheism. In addition, the interests of some of them were closely linked with the Jahiliya system. A deadly blow aimed at the polytheists of Arabia implied that recent converts to Islam would not only be required to shed the blood of those who were near and dear to them, but also to destroy the positions and privileges which they had enjoyed for centuries. All of these apprehensions proved groundless. For far from causing turmoil, the public disavowal of all affinities with the polytheists prompted those tribes which had still clung to polytheism to make their way to the Prophet, peace be upon him. They steadily came to him, embraced Islam, and pledged themselves to obey him. The delegations comprised of ordinary tribesmen as well as chiefs and princes came from all parts of Arabia. Once they had declared their conversion to Islam, the Prophet, peace be upon him, allowed them to retain their former positions. But at the time when the new policy was being launched, it was impossible for people to foresee the advantages that would follow. It should also be remembered that if the Muslims were not prepared to expend their energies for ensuring the enforcement of that decision, such advantages might not have accrued at all. It was necessary, therefore, at this stage to urge the Muslims to fight in the cause of God, to remove the misgivings which they entertained about the new policy, and to impress upon them that they should allow no consideration to prevent them from carrying out the directives of God. This constitutes the theme of the present discourse. <laughs> وينصركم عليهم ويشف صدور قوم مؤمنين 
make war on them. Allah will chastise them through you and will humiliate them. He will grant you victory over them and will soothe the bosoms of those who believe. وَيُذْهِبْ غَيْضَ قُلُوبِهِمْ وَيَتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَى مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ And will remove rage from their hearts and will enable whomsoever he wills to repent. Allah is all-knowing, all-wise and will enable whomsoever he wills to repent. Here the misunderstandings of those Muslims who considered that the Prophet's peace be upon him annulment of all agreements with the polytheists would plunge the land into a bloodbath is dispelled. It's pointed out that whilst a storm of bloody strife might well ensue, it is equally possible that the event might prompt some people to repent. This possibility was not, however, clearly spelled out. An explicit statement would, on the one hand, have made the Muslims complacent about their war preparations. On the other hand, such a statement might have negated the grim and threatening tone of the verse. Its present form alerts them to the precariousness of their situation and sets in motion a process that might lead them to assimilate into the Islamic body politic. أَمْ حَسِبْتُمْ أَن تُتْرَكُوا وَلَمَّا يَعْلَمِ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا مِنْكُمْ وَلَمْ يَتَّخِذُوا مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ وَلَا رَسُولِهِ وَلَا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَلِيْجَهُ وَاللَّهُ خَبِيرٌ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ do you imagine that you will be spared without being subjected to any test? Know well that Allah has not yet determined who strove hard in His cause and has not taken any others instead of His Messenger and the believers as His trusted allies. Allah is well aware of all that you do. مَا كَانَ لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ أَن يَعْمُرُوا مَسَاجِدَ اللَّهِ شَاهِدِينَ عَلَى أَنفُسِهِم بِالْكُفْرِ أُولَئِكَ حَبِطَتْ أَعْمَالُهُمْ وَفِي النَّارِ هُمْ خَالِدُونَ it does not become those who associate others with Allah in His divinity to visit and tend Allah's mosques while they bear witness of unbelief against themselves. All their works have gone to waste. They shall abide in the fire while they bear witness of unbelief against themselves. Those who associate others in the divinity of the one true God cannot be considered legitimate custodians, servants, and caretakers of those places consecrated exclusively for the worship of God. The polytheists of Arabia, by explicitly rejecting the call to monotheism and by refusing to consecrate their worship and servitude to the one true God, had forfeited their right to the custodianship of the Kaaba, which had after all been erected for the worship of God alone. The Qur'an thus lays down a principle, which is of general application. The specific command itself, however, was prompted by the decision to put an end to the polytheist's custodianship of the Kaaba and the holy mosque around it, and to confer it instead upon the believers. All their works have gone to waste. 
no matter what service the polytheists had proffered as custodians of the house of God, had gone to waste, for they had tainted it with polytheism together with other practices of jahiliyyah. The little good they did was outweighed by the sins they committed. إِنَّمَا يَعْمُرُ مَسَاجِدَ اللَّهِ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَأَقَامَ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتَ الزَّكَاةَ وَلَمْ يَخْشَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ فَعَسَى أُولَئِكَ أَنْ يَكُونُوا مِنَ الْمُهْتَدِينَ It only becomes those who believe in Allah and the last day and establish prayer and pay zakah and fear none but Allah to visit and tend the mosques of Allah. These are likely to be guided aright. أَجَعَلْتُمْ سِقَايَةَ الْحَاجِّ وَعِمَارَةَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ كَمَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ كَمَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَجَاهَدَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ لَا يَسْتَوُونَ Do you consider providing water to the pilgrims and tending the sacred mosque equal in worth to believing in Allah and the last day and striving in the cause of Allah? The two are not equal with Allah. Allah does not guide the wrongdoing folk. Equal in worth to believing in Allah and the last day and striving in the cause of Allah? To act merely as the custodians and caretakers of a religious shrine, as to ostentatiously perform a few religious rites with the intent of creating the impression of piety for the sake of superficial observers, was of no value in the eyes of God. A man's worth in the sight of God depends on his faith and the sacrifices he makes in this cause. Whoever is in possession of such qualities, regardless of his lineage, is of value to God. Conversely, those who enjoy an illustrious lineage and ceremoniously perform religious rites on appointed occasions, but who are devoid of the qualities outlined above, deserve no respect whatsoever. Nor is it proper to allow the custodianship of holy places and religious institutions to remain in the hands of such worthless people merely on the basis of their hereditary claims to them. الذين آمنوا وهاجروا وجاهدوا في سبيل الله بأموالهم وأنفسهم أعظم درجة عند الله وأولئك هم The higher rank with Allah is for those who believed and migrated and strove in His cause with their belongings and their persons. It is they who are triumphant. Their Lord gives them glad tidings of mercy from Him and of His good pleasure. 
For them await gardens of eternal bliss. Therein they shall abide forever. Surely with Allah there is a mighty reward. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَتَّخِذُوا آبَاءَكُمْ وَإِخْوَانَكُمْ أَوْلِيَاءَ إِنِ اسْتَحَبُّوا الْكُفْرَ عَلَى الْإِيمَانِ وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّهُمْ Believers, do not take your fathers and your brothers for your allies if they choose unbelief in preference to belief. Whosoever of you takes them as allies, those are wrongdoers. Tell them, O Prophet, if your fathers and your sons and your brothers and your wives and your tribe and the riches you have acquired and the commerce of which you fear a slackening and the dwellings that you love are dearer to you than Allah and His Messenger and striving in His cause, then wait until Allah brings about His decree. Allah does not guide the evil-doing folk. Then wait until Allah brings about His decree. It is possible that God might deprive them of the blessing of true faith and of their present preeminence and confer the same on some other group, making this latter group the standard-bearers of Islam and guides to righteousness in place of the former. لَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَوَاطِنَ كَثِيرَةٍ وَيَوْمَ حُنَيْنٍ إِذْ أَعْجَبَتْكُمْ كَثْرَتُكُمْ فَلَمْ تُغْنِ عَنْكُمْ شَيْئًا وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ ثُمَّ وَلَّيْتُمْ مُدْبِرِينَ Surely, Allah has succored you before on many a battlefield, and you have yourselves witnessed His succor to you on the day of Hunan when your numbers made you proud, but they did you no good. And the earth, for all its vastness, constrained you, and you turned your backs in retreat. And you have yourselves witnessed his succor to you. Those who anticipated a bloodbath throughout Arabia as a result of the annulment of agreements with the polytheists are being asked to shed their fears. 
They are also told that God helped the believers on earlier occasions when they were confronted with grave danger, and He was still there to help them. Had the success of the mission of Islam been dependent merely on the resources of the believers, Islam would not have spread beyond Mecca, and it would have certainly been wiped out in the Battle of Badr. Islam survived, however, for God was there to help it. Incidents in the past confirmed that if Islam had flourished, it was due to the power of God. The believers should, therefore, feel assured that he will enable Islam to flourish as he had done before. Allusion is made here to the Battle of Hunan, which took place in Shaval 8 after Hijri 630 CE in the Hunan Valley, about one year before the revelation of this verse. In this battle, the Muslim army consisted of 12,000 people. So far, the strongest Muslim army, the army of the unbelievers, was much smaller. Yet the archers of the Hawazin tribe put up a very tough fight and rooted the Muslim army. Only the Prophet, peace be upon him, and a handful of intrepid companions stood their ground. This enabled the Muslim army to reconsolidate its position and eventually win the battle. Had the outcome of the battle been different, the Muslims would have lost much more by this defeat than what they had gained by the conquest of Mecca. <laughs> Then Allah caused His tranquility to descend upon His Messenger and upon the believers. And He sent down hosts whom you did not see and chastised those who disbelieved. Such is the recompense of those who deny the truth. Then, after so chastising the unbelievers, Allah enables whomsoever He wills to repent. Allah is all-forgiving, all-merciful. Allah enables whomsoever He wills to repent. The grace and magnanimity with which the Prophet, peace be upon him, treated his defeated enemies won most of them over to Islam. By references to such instances, the Muslims are being told that they should have no reason to believe that circumstances would necessarily lead to the total obliteration of all the polytheists of Arabia. In view of past experiences, they should rather believe that once people are deprived of the false props which enabled them to cling to Jahiliyyah, they will automatically move towards Islam. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu innama al-mushrikuna najasun fala yaqrabu al-masjid al-harama ba'da amihim hadha وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ عَيْلَةً فَسَوْفَ يُغْنِيكُمُ اللَّهُ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ إِنْ شَاءَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ Believers, those who associate others with Allah and His divinity are unclean. So after the expiry of this year, let them not even go near the sacred mosque. And should you fear poverty, 
Allah will enrich you out of His bounty, if He wills. Surely, Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Let them not even go near the sacred mosque. The polytheists were not only forbidden to perform hajj, but also to enter the precincts of the holy mosque. This was done so as to ensure that there would be no revival of the polytheism or jahiliyyah in the future. That the polytheists are unclean does not imply bodily impurity. Rather, it is their beliefs, morals, deeds, practices and customs which are unclean. Hence, a ban was placed on their entry into the precincts of the holy mosque. According to Abu Hanifa, the importance of this verse lays with the fact that the unbelievers are no longer allowed to enter the precincts of the holy mosque to perform hajj and umrah, or the religious rites of jahiliyyah. However, Shafi interprets the verse in an absolute sense and rules out totally their entry into the holy precincts. Likewise, Malik holds that the ban was not confined to the holy mosque. The unbelievers may not enter any mosque. The last opinion, however, is not sound since the Prophet, peace be upon him, had allowed unbelievers to enter his own mosque in Medina. قاتلوا الذين لا يؤمنون بالله ولا باليوم الآخر ولا يحرمون ما حرم الله ورسوله ولا يدينون دين الحق ولا يدينون دين الحق من الذين أوتوا الكتاب حتى يعطوا الجزية عيدون those who do not believe in Allah and the last day, even though they were given the scriptures, and who do not hold as unlawful that which Allah and His Messenger have declared to be unlawful, and who do not follow the true religion, fight against them until they pay tribute out of their hand and are utterly subdued. Those who do not believe in Allah and the last day, Although the people of the book pretend to believe in God and the hereafter, in fact they do not. Belief in God does not simply mean verbal affirmation of God's existence. It rather means that man should accept God as the one and only Lord, and should neither associate himself nor anyone else with God's being, his attributes, his claims against man, or with his authority. Nevertheless, both the Christians and the Jews are guilty of doing this. Their actions identified at length in the following verse. Their profession of faith is, therefore, of no use and cannot be taken as evidence of true belief in God. Likewise, belief in the hereafter does not just mean affirmation of man's resurrection after death. True belief in the hereafter necessitates a firm conviction that no intercession, ransom, association with saints or spiritual leaders will be of any use in the next life nor will anyone be able to expiate for others. One should hold firm in the belief that full justice will be done in God's court where nothing else matters but one's faith and deeds. A mere verbal affirmation of belief in the hereafter is, therefore, meaningless. The Christians and the Jews have corrupted their faith since they have distorted certain basic components of that belief. Their belief in the hereafter is also inauthentic and who do not hold as unlawful that which Allah and His Messenger have declared to be unlawful. The people of the book do not follow the law revealed by God through His Messenger, peace be upon Him, out of their hand and are utterly subdued. The purpose for which the Muslims are required to fight is not as one might think to compel the unbelievers into embracing Islam. 
Rather, their purpose is to put an end to the sovereignty and supremacy of the unbelievers, so that the latter are unable to rule over men. The authority to rule should only be vested in those who follow the true faith. Unbelievers who do not follow this true faith should live in a state of subordination. Unbelievers are required to pay jizya, poll tax, in lieu of the security provided to them as the dhimis, protected people of an Islamic state. Jizya symbolizes the submission of the unbelievers to the suzerainty of Islam. To pay jizya of their own hands humbled refers to payment in a state of submission. Humbled also reinforces the idea that the believers, rather than the unbelievers, should be the rulers in performance of their duty as God's vicegerents. Initially, the rule that jizya should be realized from all non-Muslims meant its application to Christians and Jews living in the Islamic State. Later on, the Prophet, peace be upon him, extended it to Zoroastrians as well, granting them the status of dhimis. Guided by the Prophet's practice, the companions applied this rule to all non-Muslim religious communities living outside Arabia. Some 19th century Muslim writers and their followers in their own times never seem to tire of their apologies for jizya. But God's religion does not require that apologetic explanations be made on its behalf. The simple fact is that according to Islam, non-Muslims have been granted the freedom to stay outside the Islamic fold and to cling to their false, man-made ways if they so wish. They have, however, absolutely no right to seize the reins of power in any part of God's earth nor to direct the collective affairs of human beings according to their own misconceived doctrines. For if they are given such an opportunity, corruption and mischief will ensue. In such a situation, the believers would be under an obligation to do their utmost to dislodge them from political power and to make them live in subservience to the Islamic way of life. It is sometimes asked, what do non-Muslims get in return for jizya? In our view, jizya is the compensation which non-Muslims pay for the freedom they are provided to adhere to their erroneous ways while living under an Islamic state. The amount so received should be spent on the administration of that righteous state which grants them freedom and protects their rights. One of the advantages of jizya is that it reminds the dhimis every year that because they do not embrace Islam, they are not only deprived of the honor of paying zakah, but also have to pay a price, jizya, for clinging to their errors. وقالت اليهود عزير ابن الله وقالت النصارى المسيح ابن الله ذلك قولهم بأفواههم يضاهئون قول الذين كفروا من قبل قاتلهم الله أن the Jews say, Ezra, Uzair, is Allah's son. And the Christians say, the Messiah is the son of Allah. These are merely verbal assertions in imitation of the sayings of those unbelievers who preceded them. May Allah ruin them. How do they turn away from the truth? The Jews say, Ezra, Uzair, is Allah's son. The Jews consider Ezra, circa 450 BC, to be the reviver of their faith. 
According to their tradition, it was Ezra who compiled the Torah and revived the law which had been lost in the dark period following the death of the prophet Solomon, peace be upon him. As a result of their captivity in Babylon, the Jews had become oblivious to their scripture, law, traditions, and national language, Hebrew. The Jews hold Ezra in great esteem for his revival of their faith. Some Jewish sects, however, revered Ezra to the point of deifying him, some even considering him the son of God. The above verse does not suggest that all Jews were guilty of this deification. It only points to the Aaronist Jewish concept of God, which resulted in the appearance of certain groups within the Jewish community, itself who held Ezra to be the son of God. These are merely verbal assertions in imitation of the sayings of those unbelievers who preceded them. The unbelievers of old refers to the Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Persians, and others who had gone astray. Influenced by their thoughts, superstitions, and myths, both the Jews and Christians invented false doctrines. They take their rabbis and their monks for their lords besides Allah, and also the Messiah, son of Mary, whereas they were commanded to worship none but the one God. There is no God but He. Exalted be he above those whom they associate with him in his divinity. They take their rabbis and their monks for their lords besides Allah. As reported in a tradition, Adi bin Hatim, a Christian convert to Islam, once requested the Prophet, peace be upon him, to explain the import of the following Quranic statement. They, the Jews and Christians, take their priests and monks as lords apart from Allah. In reply, the Prophet, peace be upon him, asked him, Is it not so that you consider unlawful whatever your priests declare to be unlawful, and consider lawful whatever your priests declare to be lawful? Adi confirmed that such was the practice of the Jews and Christians. Thereupon, the Prophet, peace be upon him, told him that doing so amounted to taking them as lords apart from Allah. This means, according to the Qur'an, that those who declare things to be lawful or unlawful without sanction from the Book of God, in fact, place themselves in the position of God. Similarly, those who accept the right of such persons to make laws according to their will, take them as their lords. Both these charges against the Jews and the Christians, that they declared one person or another to be the Son of God, and that they invested human beings with the authority to make laws independent of revelation, have been mentioned in order to emphasize that their profession to believe in God was false. They might well be believers in the existence of God, but their concept of God is so erroneous that their belief is no better than disbelief. يريدون أن الله بأفواههم ويأبى الله إلا أن ولو كره الكافرون. 
They seek to extinguish the light of Allah by blowing through their mouths, but Allah refuses everything except that He will perfect His light, even though the unbelievers might abhor it. He it is who has sent his messenger with the guidance of the true religion that he may make it prevail over all religions howsoever those who associate others with Allah in his divinity might detest it that he may make it prevail over all religions the word used in the verse is al-deen the way in arabic this word signifies as we have explained earlier a way of life to which one subjects oneself because of one's belief that he who prescribed it enjoys supreme authority and is worthy of obedience the verse explains that the purpose of the prophets was to establish the supremacy of the guidance and the right way revealed to them by God over and above all other systems of life. In other words, a prophet is never sent with a sanction to let the way of life revealed to him be subjected to other ways of life. Nor is a prophet sent to be content to exist at the sufferance of the false ways of life which hold sway over man's life. Since a prophet is the representative of the Lord of the universe, he seeks to make the right way prevail. If any other way of life continues to exist, it should be satisfied with the concessions made to it by Islam. For example, the rights granted to the Dhamis to enjoy the protection offered by Islam in lieu of jizya. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنَّ كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الْأَحْبَارِ وَالرُّهْبَانِ لَيَأْكُلُونَ لَيَأْكُلُونَ أَمْوَالَ النَّاسِ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَيَصُدُّونَ عَن سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالَّذِينَ يَكْنِزُونَ الذَّهَبَ وَالْفِضَّةَ وَلَا يُنْفِقُونَهَا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَبَشِّرْهُمْ فَبَشِّرْهُمْ بِعَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ Believers, many of the rabbis and monks wrongfully devour men's possessions and hinder people from the way of Allah. And there are those who amass gold and silver and do not spend it in the way of Allah. Announce to them the tidings of a painful chastisement and hinder people from the way of Allah. The false pretenders to piety issued false religious decrees in return for pecuniary benefits, took bribes, accepted presents and offerings and invented a variety of religious rituals that forced people to buy their salvation from them. They also extorted money from the people on every conceivable pretext, creating situations in which it would become impossible for people to escape their extortionate clutches, be the occasion one of birth, marriage, or death. People were made to believe that their fate was in the pretender's hands, that they could make or ruin you. Driven by pecuniary motives alone, they led people into error and engrossed them in it. Whenever a call for reform is made, such people are the first to oppose it and use every possible device to that wicked end. يَوْمَ يُحْمَى عَلَيْهَا فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ 
On a day when they shall be heated in the fire of hell, and their foreheads and their sides and their backs shall be branded with it, and they shall be told, This is the treasure which you hoarded for yourselves. Taste then the punishment for what you have hoarded. Surely the reckoning of months in the sight of Allah is twelve months laid down in Allah's decree on the day when He created the heavens and the earth. And out of these months four are sacred. That is the true ordainment. Do not therefore wrong yourselves with respect to these months. And fight altogether against those who associate others with Allah in His divinity, in the manner which they fight against you altogether. And know well that Allah is with the God-fearing. Surely, the reckoning of months in the sight of Allah is twelve months. Ever since God created the universe, the moon has unfailingly appeared every month in the form of a crescent and then completed its full cycle, ending with its disappearance from the sky. As a result of this, twelve months have always constituted a year. However, the Arabs, in accordance with their practice of nasi, increase the number of months to 13 or 14 to enable them to interpose in the calendar a sacred month which they declare to be free of the restrictions they were required to follow during the sacred months. Do not therefore wrong yourselves with respect to these months. They were asked not to disregard beneficial considerations, for waging war in those months was prohibited, nor to wrong themselves by creating disorder during those days. The four months alluded to here are the months of Zulqada, Zilhaj, and Muharram for Hajj, major pilgrimage, and Rajab for Umrah, minor pilgrimage, in the manner that they fight against you all together. The Muslims are told that they are free to fight in the sacred months if the unbelievers attack them. If the unbelievers fight unitedly against the Muslims in disregard of the sacred months, the Muslims may also unitedly fight against them. <laughs> Kafirin. 
The intercalation of sacred months is an act of gross infidelity which causes the unbelievers to be led further astray. They declare a month to be lawful in one year and forbidden in another year in order that they may conform to the number of months that Allah has declared as sacred and at the same time make lawful what Allah has forbidden. Their foul acts seem fair to them. Allah does not provide guidance to those who deny the truth. Make lawful what Allah has forbidden. Nasi was practiced by the Arabs in two ways. A. In order to shed blood or to plunder or to satisfy a blood vendetta. Here they declared a sacred month to be an ordinary one and compensated for this violation later on by declaring one of the ordinary months to be sacred. B. With a view to harmonizing the lunar calendar with the solar calendar, the Arabs used to add a month to the lunar calendar. Their purpose in so doing was to ensure that the Hajj dates should consistently fall in the same season so that they were spared the hardship and inconvenience resulting from observation of the lunar calendar for the fixation of the Hajj dates. As a result of this practice, Hajj was performed once on its appointed date, the days on which the ninth and the 10th of Zulhijjah truly fell, and then for the next 33 years it was performed on days which were fictitiously declared to be the ninth and 10th of Zulhijjah. Allusion to this is found in the Prophet's address during the farewell pilgrimage. The time has returned to what it was when God created the heavens and the earth. By forbidding Nasi, a major step was taken to frustrate the principal purposes of the pre-Islamic Arabs. The first of these purposes involved quite obviously undisguised sin. It consisted in practice of legalizing what God had declared unlawful. By resorting to chicanery, the Arabs attempted to give their impious act a semblance of legality. As for the second purpose, viz. to keep the Hajj permanently fixed to the solar calendar, it might seem innocuous and beneficent at the first sight. In actual fact, however, even this purpose amounts to an act of rebellion against the law of God. God chose the lunar calendar in connection with the rites of Hajj for a number of reasons, one of which seems to be that man should accustom himself to following the law of God in all possible conditions and circumstances. To take the case of Ramadan, because it follows the lunar calendar, it falls in different seasons. Sometimes it falls in summer, sometimes in winter, and sometimes in spring or autumn. Men of faith, however, obey God in every season, in all kinds of weather conditions, and this provides them with excellent moral training. Similarly, as the lunar calendar is followed in determining the dates of Hajj, then this also falls in different years and different seasons. People, therefore, have to undertake long journeys in varying conditions to perform pilgrimage. This is certainly a test of their mettle and helps them acquire the capacity to remain steadfast in their obedience to God. Now, if for the sake of man's own convenience, be it in relation to tourism, business or fun, the Muslims were to decide that Hajj and Ramadan should always fall during the pleasant seasons of the year, this would amount to rebellion against God. For some of God's purposes would be blatantly violated. Moreover, since Islam is a universal religion, it is inconceivable that a particular month of the solar calendar should be permanently fixed for pilgrimage or fasting. For some people would find it convenient whilst others traveling from other parts of the world would find it permanently inconvenient. It is worth noting that the proclamation to abolish Nasi was made during the Hajj in 9 after Hijri 631 CE. The following year in 10 after Hijri 632 CE, Hajj was performed on the appointed dates and in accordance with the lunar calendar. From that time onwards, Hajj has always been performed on its due dates.
Believers, what is amiss with you that when it is said to you, march forth in the cause of Allah, you cling heavily to the earth? Do you prefer the worldly life to the hereafter? Know well that all the enjoyment of this world in comparison with the hereafter is trivial. Believers, this verse marks the beginning of the second discourse of the surah comprising verses 38 to 72. It was revealed during the preparations for the Tabuk expedition that all the enjoyment of this world in comparison with the hereafter is trivial. The statement that the goods of this world will count for little in the hereafter is open to two possible interpretations. First, it may mean that on witnessing the eternal life and immeasurable bounties of the next life, one will realize the triviality of pleasures gained in worldly life. This would make people deeply regret, despite having been duly warned and out of sheer short-sightedness, that they sacrifice the everlasting and immense bliss of the hereafter for the ephemeral pleasures of this world. Second, that the enjoyments of this world will be of no avail in the next life. For, howsoever well provided one might be with worldly goods, one has to leave them behind at the time of death. Once a man dies, all his worldly possessions remain behind, and no part of them can be transferred to the next world. Whatever good will come to man's share in the next life will be in consideration of the sacrifices he has made in seeking God's good pleasure. إِلَّا تَنْفِرُوا يُعَذِّبْكُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا وَيَسْتَبْدِلْ قَوْمًا غَيْرَكُمْ وَلَا تَضُرُّوهُ شَيْئًا وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ If you do not march forth, Allah will chastise you grievously. and will replace you by another people, while you will in no way be able to harm him. Allah has power over everything. If you do not march forth, Allah will chastise you grievously. This verse formed the basis of a legal ruling issued by the jurists regarding jihad. They concluded that as long as the Muslims as a whole, or the Muslims of a particular area or a section thereof, have not been a summon to jihad, it would remain merely fard bi al-kifaya, the collective duty of all Muslims. Thus, if some Muslims engaged in jihad, other Muslims are absolved from that obligation. However, if the Muslims are called upon by their leader to make jihad, no matter whether all Muslims are so called or the Muslims of a particular area or a section thereof, jihad would become obligatory on every Muslim who has been so called upon. The matter is of such vital importance that if those who fail to perform this duty without any legitimate excuse claim to be Muslims, such a claim will not be entertained and will replace you by another people. The Muslims are told to disabuse their minds of the misconception that but for them God's purpose would not be achieved. On the contrary, if they have served the cause of God, they should gratefully recognize God's favor on them insofar as He has provided them with a golden opportunity to serve the cause of their faith. 
If they allow such an opportunity to slip, then God will lavish that favor on some other people. إذ أخرجه الذين كفروا ثانيتين إذ هما في الغار إذ يقول لصاحبه لا تحزن إن الله معنا فأنزل الله سكينته عليه وأيده بجنود لم تروها وجعل كلمة الذين كفروا السفلى وكلمة الله هي العليا والله عزيز حكيم It will matter little if you do not help the Prophet. For Allah surely helped him when the unbelievers drove him out of his home, and he was but one of the two when they were in the cave. And when he said to his companion, Do not grieve, Allah is with us. Then Allah caused his tranquility to descend upon him and supported him with hosts you did not see, and he humbled the word of the unbelievers. As for Allah's word, it is inherently uppermost. Allah is all-powerful, all-wise. Do not grieve. Allah is with us. This statement occurs in connection with the migration of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to Medina on the very night the Meccan unbelievers planned to kill him. A majority of Muslims had already migrated to Medina in their twos and threes. Those Muslims who remained in Mecca were either helpless or were not dependable, their faith being suspect. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, learned of the plot to assassinate him, he left Makkah in the company of only one person, Abu Bakr. Anticipating a hot pursuit by the enemy, the Prophet, peace be upon him, traveled southward instead of following the northern route which leads to Medina. He also secluded himself in a cave, thawed for three days. As the Prophet, peace be upon him, had anticipated, his bloodthirsty enemies began their mad pursuit. They searched every nook and cranny around Mecca. Some of his pursuers even reached the mouth of the cave where the Prophet, peace be upon him, was in hiding. This naturally caused Abu Bakr considerable consternation, as he and the Prophet, peace be upon him, were just a step away from being caught. The Prophet, peace be upon him, remained unperturbed. He comforted Abu Bakr, saying, Grieve not, for Allah is with us. انفروا خفافا وثقالا وجاهدوا بأموالكم وأنفسكم في سبيل الله ذلكم خير لكم إن كنتم تعلمون March 4th, whether light or heavy, and strive in the way of Allah with your belongings and your lives. That is best for you, if you only knew it. March 4th, whether light or heavy. The directive, go forth in the way of Allah, whether you are equipped lightly or heavily, is comprehensive in its meaning. In the first place, it instructs Muslims to go forth and fight in the cause of God. They should comply with this request regardless of whether they feel happy to do so or not, whether they are amply resourceful or otherwise, whether the circumstances are favorable or adverse, and whether they are young and healthy or old and weak.
لو كان عرضا قريبا وسفرا قاصدا لاتبعوك ولكن بعدت عليهم الشقة وسيحلفون بالله لو استطعنا لخرجنا معكم يهلكون أنفسهم يهلكون أنفسهم والله يعلم إنهم لكاذبون Were it again at hand or a short journey, they would have surely followed you, but the distance seemed too far to them. Still, they will swear by Allah, if only we could, we would surely have gone forth with you. They merely bring ruin upon themselves. Allah knows well that they are liars. But the distance seemed too far to them. The idea of marching across vast stretches of desert to reach the book appeared arduous for a number of reasons. Because of the prospect of an armed encounter with a power as great as that of the Romans, because the journey was to take place in the blazing heat of summer, and because the harvesting season was just at hand, this was of great importance that year when famine conditions prevailed. عفى الله عنك لما أذنت لهم حتى يتبين لك الذين صدقوا وتعلم الكاذبين O Prophet, may Allah forgive you. Why did you give them leave to stay behind before it became clear to you as to who were truthful and who were liars? As to who were truthful and who were liars? Proffering excuses, the hypocrites asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, to exempt them from jihad. Even though the Prophet, peace be upon him, was aware of the falsity of their excuses, he granted them an exemption. This, however, did not meet with the approval of God, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, was told that his leniency towards the hypocrites was not well placed, for the latter had used the exemption to disguise their hypocrisy. Had they not been exempted, their deliberate abstention from jihad, would have revealed the hypocrites in their true colors. لا يستأذنك الذين يؤمنون بالله واليوم الآخر أن يجاهدوا بأموالهم وأنفسهم والله عليم بالمتقين Those who believe in Allah and the last day will never ask your leave to be excused from striving in the cause of Allah with their belongings and their lives. Allah fully knows the God-fearing. إِنَّمَا يَسْتَأْذِنُكَ الَّذِينَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَارْتَابَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ فَهُمْ فِي رَيْبِهِمْ يَتَرَدَّدُونَ It is only those who do not believe in Allah and the last day. and whose hearts are filled with doubt that seek exemption from striving in the cause of Allah. They keep tossing to and fro in their doubt. They keep tossing to and fro in their doubt. One thus learns that an encounter between the forces of Islam and unbelief serves as a touchstone for distinguishing a true believer from a hypocrite. Whenever such an encounter takes place, a sincere believer is bound to exert himself to the utmost in support of Islam, not sparing any effort or resource in that connection. 
On the contrary, if a person shirks from supporting Islam and is overly concerned with saving his own skin, his conduct negates his claim to be a sincere believer. وَلَوْ أَرَادُوا الْخُرُوجَ لَأَعَدُّوا لَهُ عُدَّةً وَلَكِنْ كَرِهَ اللَّهُ بِعَاثَهُمْ فَثَبَّطَهُمْ فَثَبَّطَهُمْ وَقِيلَ قُعُدُوا مَعَ الْقَاعِدِينَ Had they truly intended to march forth to fight, they would have certainly made some preparation for it. But Allah was averse to their going forth, so He made them lag behind, and they were told, Stay behind with those that are staying behind. But Allah was averse to their going forth. God did not like that people should rise to fight in His cause unwillingly, without sincerity of purpose. The situation with the hypocrites was that they lacked the spirit of jihad. They had no zeal for a struggle to uphold Islam. If they were to participate half-heartedly in jihad, merely under the pressure of Muslim public opinion, or with the intent to cause mischief, this might have resulted in much greater damage as is clearly mentioned in the next verse. Verse 47. Had they gone forth with you, they would have only added to your trouble and would have run about in your midst seeking to stir up sedition among you. Whereas there are among you some who are prone to lend ears to them. Allah knows well the wrongdoers. Surely, they sought even earlier to stir up sedition and turn things upside down to frustrate you until the truth came and the decree of Allah appeared. However hateful this may have been to them, وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَقُولُ أَذَلِّي وَلَا تَفْتِنِّي أَلَا فِي الْفِتْنَةِ سَقَطُوا وَإِنَّ جَهَنَّمَ لَمُحِيطَةٌ بِالْكَافِرِينَ And among them is he who says, Grant me leave to stay behind, and do not expose me to temptation. Lo! They have already fallen into temptation. Surely, hell encompasses the unbelievers. And do not expose me to temptation. Some of the hypocrites even had the affrontery to seek their exemption from jihad by fabricating excuses weaved from religious and moral pretensions. This is well illustrated by the plea of Jad bin Qais, which had been recorded in the traditions. He told the Prophet, peace be upon him, that he was infatuated with feminine beauty, a weakness which he claimed was well known to his fellow tribesmen. He pleaded that if he were to see Roman women, he might be unable to keep himself under control. He asked, therefore, for an exemption from jihad in order that he remain beyond such temptations. Lo, they have already fallen into temptation. 
These hypocrites made the pretense that they were afraid of evil temptations and hence should be spared being sent to the war front. But the fact of the matter is that they were fully given over to a variety of evils, hypocrisy, lies, deceit, and pretense of piety. They sought to persuade their God of their fears from even minor temptations. But it's quite clear that withholding their support to Islam in its crucial encounter with unbelief is in itself the worst kind of evil. Surely, hell encompasses the unbelievers. Instead of bringing them any good, their false pretense of piety led them ultimately to hell. If good fortune befalls you, it vexes them. And if an affliction befalls you, they turn away in jubilation and say, We have taken due care of our affairs in good time. Say, nothing will befall us except what Allah has decreed for us. He is our protector. Let the believers then put all their trust in Allah. Let the believers then put all their trust in Allah. The above Quranic passage delineates the differences in the attitude of a man of God and a man of the world. In all his actions, the man of the world seeks to satisfy himself by the attainment of worldly ends. If he is able to attain those ends, his joy knows no bounds. If he fails, he feels overly dejected. Moreover, a worldly person depends on material resources alone. If material circumstances seem favorable, that boosts his spirit. In unfavorable circumstances, he feels altogether heartbroken. A man of God, on the contrary, is prompted in all his actions by the desire to please God. Therefore, far from depending on his own strength or on material resources, he depends upon God. Regardless of whether he meets with success or suffers reverses in his struggle for the cause of the truth, he remains calm since he believes that both are essentially God-given, that it is the omnipotent will of God which is at work in both cases. Adversities do not dishearten him. Success does not make him swagger. For apart from considering both success and failure to be from God, he regards each of them as a test from God, and his attention is focused on how he might successfully pass that test. Moreover, since his basic purposes are not of a worldly nature, he does not measure his success or failure by a worldly yardstick. The good pleasure of God being his sole end, a man of God measures his success or failure with reference to the extent to which he was able to devote his life and resources in God's cause. If a man does not exert himself fully in the performance of his duty, it is immaterial whether he attains any success in this world or not. For he is convinced that even if he loses all that he has in this world, his resources and even his life, this will not be allowed to go unrewarded by God in whose cause he had made that sacrifice. Such a man is also not daunted by adverse circumstances, for he places his trust in God, the Lord of all resources. 
reposing his trust in God, he continues to strive with the same zeal and determination with which a worldly person strives when the circumstances seem favorable. That is the reason why God directs the believers in the above verse to tell the hypocrites who are enamored of worldly life that the basic attitude of the believers is altogether different from theirs. The two groups also entertain entirely different notions as to what causes happiness and grief. The believers derive their contentment and happiness from one source, and the hypocrites from an entirely different source. وَنَحْنُ نَتَرَبَّصُ بِكُمْ أَنْ يُصِيبَكُمُ اللَّهُ بِعَذَابٍ مِّنْ عِنْدِهِ أَوْ بِأَيْدِيْنَا فَتَرَبَّصُوا إِنَّا مَعَكُمْ مُتَرَبِّصُونَ Tell them, what you await to befall upon us is nothing but one of the two good things, and what we await for you is that Allah visit you with chastisement from Him, or chastise you at our hands. So continue waiting, we too shall wait with you. Tell them, what you await to befall upon us is nothing but one of the two good things, the hypocrites, despite their profession of belief in Islam, refrained from openly taking sides with Islam in its encounter with unbelief. They were disposed to a wisdom which ensured they remain on the fence and watch from a safe distance the outcome of the encounter between the two forces, Islam and unbelief. The result could be either the victory of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions, or their total destruction by the mighty Roman army. In response to their attitude, the hypocrites were told, see verse 52, that both consequences were good in the eyes of the Muslims. For if the believers emerged victorious, the good of it, for them, would be self-evident. However, even if the Muslims perished whilst sincerely striving for their cause, this is a great achievement in the eyes of a Muslim, even though the superficial judgment of the world would deride it as a disgraceful end. This is so because the criterion used by a Muslim to measure his success or failure is quite different from that used by others. A Muslim's success does not essentially consist of such worldly achievements as the conquest of a territory or the establishment of an empire. His true success depends on devoting all his physical and mental energy to upholding the word of God. If a Muslim devotes himself to this cause, he will be reckoned successful even if the result of his efforts from a worldly point of view might add up to zero. Whether you spend your money willingly or unwillingly, it shall not find acceptance with Allah. For you are an evil-doing folk, whether you spend your money willingly or unwillingly. Some of the hypocrites who were unwilling to take the risk of joining the Muslims in their jihad were also keen not to lose their credibility among the Muslims by totally disassociating themselves from it, since this would have amounted to a public proclamation of their hypocrisy. Hence, they took the position that while they would like to be exempted from actual fighting, they would be willing to make financial contributions to the cause of jihad.
وما منعهم أن تقبل منهم نفقاتهم إلا أنهم كفروا بالله وبرسوله إلا أنهم كفروا بالله وبرسوله ولا يأتون الصلاة إلا وهم كسالا ولا ينفقون إلا وهم كارهون Nothing prevents that their expendings be accepted except that they disbelieve in Allah and His Messenger. And whenever they come to the prayer, they do so lazily. And whenever they spend, they do so grudgingly. فَلَا تُعْجِبَكَ أَمْوَالُهُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُهُمْ إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ بها في الحياة الدنيا وتزهق أنفسهم وهم كافرون. Let neither their riches nor their children excite your admiration. Allah only wants to chastise them through these things in the present life and to cause them to die while they are unbelievers. Allah only wants to chastise them through these things in the present life. Here, the real cause of hypocrisy has been pinpointed. Excessive love for their offspring and worldly possessions. Given this weakness, it was obvious that the hypocrites would ultimately be disgraced among the Muslims and lose all the prestige, influence and social status which they had hitherto enjoyed in the Arab society. For while the hereditary chiefs would lose their locus sandi, those belonging to the lower rungs of society, the common slaves and the offspring of slaves, the ordinary cultivators and shepherds, would attain honor and status in the new social order if they remained faithful to the cause of Islam. An illustration in point is the following incident which took place in the time of Umar. Some leading members of the Quraysh, including Suhail bin Amr and Harith bin Hisham, once called upon Umar. While they were seated in Umar's company, they noticed that Umar received the Ansar and Muhajirun with great consideration and asked them to sit beside them in preference to the Quraysh notables, whom he asked to move aside so that after some time they were relegated to their rearmost seats. When the Quraysh notables came out of the meeting, Harith addressed his colleagues thus, Look how we were treated today. To this Suhail bin Amr replied, Umar is not to be blamed for meeting out this treatment to us. Rather, it is our own fault. We had rejected this religion when we were invited to accept it, while they, the Ansar and Muhajirun, readily accepted it. They later visited Umar and told him, Today we saw how you treated us. We realize that we are to be blamed for it. Is there a way for us to make amends? Without giving any reply, Umar pointed to the Roman border. His message was loud and clear. If they could show the readiness to sacrifice their lives and wealth in the cause of God, this might help them regain their lost positions. And to cause them to die while they are unbelievers. Apart from being subjected to worldly disgrace and ignominy, the hypocrites would undergo a greater suffering. They would not be able to enjoy the blessing of true faith till their last breath and this would be because of the hypocritical traits which they had nourished in themselves. 
Furthermore, after ruining their lives in this world, they would proceed from it to meet an even more calamitous end in the next life. وَيَحْلِفُونَ بِاللَّهِ إِنَّهُمْ لَمِنْكُمْ وَمَا هُمْ مِنْكُمْ وَلَكِنَّهُمْ قَوْمٌ يَفْرَقُونَ They swear by Allah that they are part of you, whereas they are certainly not part of you. They are merely a people who dread you. لو يجدون ملجأ أو مغارات أو مدخلا لولوا إليه وهم يجمحون. If they could find any shelter or any cavern or any retreat, they would turn around and rush headlong into it. They would turn around and rush headlong into it. Almost all the hypocrites of Medina were rich and elderly people. According to the description of the hypocrites in Ibn Kathir's Al-Bidayah wa Al-Nihayah, one of them was young and absolutely none of them was poor. They had successful businesses and sprawling estates in Medina. Their extensive experience in worldly matters had turned them into perfect time servers. When soon after the advent of Islam in Medina, a large number of its inhabitants embraced Islam with sincerity and devotion, the hypocrites found themselves in a tight corner. For, on the one hand, they found their fellow tribesmen, including some of their own sons and daughters, full of sincere devotion to Islam. In such a situation, were they to reject and publicly renounce Islam, this could mean the very end of their prestige and influence. This could also invite severe opposition from members of their own household. On the other hand, if they aligned themselves with the Muslims, it was obvious that it would incur the hostility of all Arabia, and possibly of a number of neighboring countries and empires. At the same time, they were so strongly in the grip of their own self-interest that they had lost the capacity to appreciate the truth for its own sake. They were unable to comprehend the idea of placing the truth above everything else and courting all possible risks and endangering their lives and wealth for its sake. Thus their self-interest dictated that they should profess belief in Islam in order to retain their prestige in Medina as well as to protect their estates and commercial interests. This profession of Islam was a mere sham so as to ward off the dangers inherent in sincere and unreserved identification with Islam. The Qur'an accurately portrays their state of mind and stresses that they had not sincerely identified themselves with the Muslims. They had willy-nilly become a part of the Muslim body politic, merely out of the fear of economic loss. They had professed their identification with the Muslims because they were afraid of the many losses which they might incur by openly renouncing Islam while living in Medina. Such a step was not only likely to destroy their social position, but even rupture their relations with their wives and children. Also, if they decided to leave Medina, it would entail colossal material loss. So in the final analysis, they did not even have any sincere devotion to unbelief, which would prepare them to suffer losses for its sake. All these factors ensured that the hypocrites stayed on in Medina, performing prayers even though they detested it, and paying zakah even though they paid it in the spirit in which one pays a penalty. However, day in and day out, their formal profession to faith in Islam made them vulnerable to the demands to engage in jihad against one formidable power or another, and to risk their lives and property for the sake of Islam.
These demands made them so restless that they would have been happy to seek refuge in any hole and hiding place if such were available, which promised them security for their interests. O Prophet, some of them find fault with you in the distribution of alms. If they are given something of it, they are pleased, and if they are given nothing, they are angry. They are pleased, and if they are given nothing, they are angry. For the first time in the history of Arabia, all those who possessed wealth exceeding a certain minimum were asked to pay zakah. This zakah was levied on agricultural produce, cattle, merchandise, minerals, and gold and silver according to a set of varying rates of 2.5%, 5%, 10%, and 20%. Since zakah was collected and spent in an organized manner, the Prophet, peace be upon him, received and distributed funds on a scale previously unknown to the Arabs. This spectacle of wealth distribution whetted the hypocrites' appetites. However, as we know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, who oversaw the distribution of zakah, excluded himself and the members of his family from any share in it. How could he then tolerate that zakah should be appropriated by undeserving persons? This attitude of the Prophet, peace be upon him, offended the hypocrites and evoked their spite. The hypocrites obviously could not spell out the true reason for their wrath. It was embarrassing for them to say that they were annoyed since they were not permitted to misappropriate zakah funds. They therefore kept their real grievance hidden and time and again found false reasons for accusing the Prophet, peace be upon him, of partiality and injustice in the distribution of zakah. Would that they were content with what Allah and His Messenger gave them, and were to say, Allah suffices for us, and Allah will give us out of His bounty, and so will His Messenger. It is to Allah alone that we turn with hope. Would that they were content with what Allah and His Messenger gave them. The Quran says that the hypocrites should have better felt content with the share of the spoils granted to them by the Prophet, peace be upon him, with the living which they made because of the grace of God and with the prosperity which they enjoyed. And Allah will give us out of his bounty, and so will his messenger. The hypocrites should have felt secure economically, for they were entitled, like before, to receive their due shares besides zakah out of wealth that they would come to the treasury. It is to Allah alone that we turn with hope. Rather than focus one's attention on the world and its worthless riches, one should turn one's attention to God and His grace and bounty, seeking His good pleasure. One's hopes should be centered upon Him alone, and one should be totally satisfied with whatever wealth God bestows. يأمرون بالمنكر وينهون عن المعروف ويقبضون أيديهم 
نسوا الله فنسيهم ان المنافقين هم الفاسقون The hypocrites be they men or women are all alike they enjoin what is evil and forbid what is good and withhold their hands from doing good they forgot Allah so Allah also forgot them surely the hypocrites are wicked and withhold their hands from doing good an instinctive interest in evil and hostility to goodness are common denominators of all hypocrites if a person is inclined to evil they lavish their sympathy counsel encouragement and support upon him they do not fail to intercede on his behalf and spare no eloquence in their praise of him they join hands in his evil deeds and urge others to take part in them as well they also encourage the evil doer to continue in the same vein their attitude leaves no room for doubt that evil gratifies them to the core for the mere sight of a good deed puts them off the very thought of goodness distresses them they are ill prepared to see anybody suggest an act of goodness when they see anyone proceed in that direction they writhe in pain they resort to a variety of devices to obstruct people from doing good and to dissuade them from it Another trait common to all hypocrites is their unwillingness to spend in good causes. This characterizes not only those hypocrites who are miserly, but also those who are otherwise spendthrift. The ill-gotten wealth of the hypocrites is either stored in their coffers or squandered on unlawful pursuits. They are utterly extravagant if the purpose be evil, but are totally close-fisted if the money is needed for a good cause. وعد الله المنافقين والمنافقات والكفار نار جهنم خالدين فيها هي حسبهم ولعنهم الله ولهم عذاب مقيم Allah has promised hellfire to the hypocrites both men and women and to the unbelievers they shall abide in it a sufficient recompense for them allah has cursed them and theirs is a lasting torment kalladhina min qablikum kanu ashadda minkum quwwatan فَاسْتَمْتَعُوا بِخَلَاقِهِمْ فَاسْتَمْتَعْتُمْ بِخَلَاقِكُمْ كَمَا اسْتَمْتَعَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ بِخَلَاقِهِمْ وَخُضْتُمْ كَالَّذِي خَاضُوا أُولَئِكَ حَبِطَتْ أَعْمَالُهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ وَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ Your ways are like the ways of those who have gone before you. They were mightier than you in power, and more abundant in riches and children. They enjoyed their lot for a while, as you have enjoyed your lot, and you also engaged in idle talk, as they did. Their works have come to naught in this world, and in the hereafter they are surely the losers. Your ways are like the ways of those who have gone before you. The foregoing characterize the hypocrites in the third person. Here suddenly they are addressed directly in the second person. 
أَلَمْ يَأْتِهِمْ نَبَأُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ قَوْمِ نُوحٍ وَعَادٍ وَثَمُودَ وَقَوْمِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَأَصْحَابِ مَدْيَنَ وَالْمُؤْتَفِكَاتِ أَتَتْهُمْ رُسُلُهُمْ بِالْبَيْنَاتِ فَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَظْلِمَهُمْ وَلَكِنْ كَانُوا أَنفُسَهُمْ يَظْلِمُونَ Have they not heard the accounts of those who came before them, of the people of Noah and Ad and Thamud and the people of Abraham, peace be upon them, and the dwellers of Madian, Midian, and the ruined cities? Their messengers came to them with clear signs. Then it was not Allah who caused them any wrong. They rather wronged themselves. Have they not heard the accounts of those who came before them? The narrative again reverts to a description of the hypocrites in the third person. And the dwellers of Madian, Midian, and the ruined cities. This refers to the areas where the people of Lot, peace be upon him, lived. Then it was not Allah who caused them any wrong. They rather wrong themselves. The Qur'an emphasizes that earlier communities were not destroyed because God had any grudge against them, which prompted Him to seek their destruction. This calamitous end was the natural result of their own actions. God gave them every opportunity to choose the right path. He gave them every opportunity to think and to understand. He sent messengers to admonish them and who warned them of the dire consequences of their wickedness, who explained clearly which way leads to salvation and which to destruction. But when they failed to pay any heed to these admonitions and persisted in following the wrong path, they inevitably met with disastrous consequences. This constitutes the import of the above verse. It is not Allah who wrongs them, it is they who wrong themselves. وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضٌ يَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَيُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةَ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَاةَ وَيُطِيعُونَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ أولئك سيرحمهم الله إن الله عزيز حكيم. The believers, both men and women, are allies of one another. They enjoin good, forbid evil, establish prayer, pay zakah, and obey Allah and His Messenger. Surely Allah will show mercy to them. Allah is Almighty, All-Wise. Establish prayer, pay zakah, and obey Allah and His Messenger. The Muslims and hypocrites stood apart, each a separate entity. Superficially, they seemed identical insofar as both groups recognized Islam as their religion and outwardly followed the same set of religious practices. Nevertheless, they differed in character, temperament, behavior, and habits. In short, in their total orientation, in the case of the hypocrites, faith was merely a verbal claim devoid of true conviction. This claim was repudiated by their lifestyle. Their case is similar to that of a man who fills up a container with filth and labels it perfume, 
a claim which will instantly be known to be false by the stench it gives off. In the case of the true believers, their claim can be verified by reference to their character and conduct. The label of perfume is justified by the sweet smell. Both the hypocrites and true believers passed off as members of the same Muslim community due to the label of Islam. Nevertheless, the characteristics of the two were so radically different that they could not be considered one community. The hypocrites, by dint of their heedlessness to God, their instinctive interest in evil, their revulsion against goodness, their unwillingness to cooperate with good causes, were a community by themselves. On the other hand, the true believers, men and women, constituted a distinct community because they shared many traits. They were instinctively disposed to righteousness, they abhorred evil, and remembrance of God was the very breath of life for them. They also spent freely in the way of God, and the dominant characteristic of their life as a whole was obedience to God. These common characteristics developed a sense of common identity among them and made them quite distinct from the hypocrites. خالدين فيها ومساكن طيبة في جنات عدن ورضوان من الله أكبر ذلك هو الفوز العظيم Allah has promised the believing men and believing women gardens beneath which rivers flow they shall abide in it. There are delightful dwelling places for them in the gardens of eternity. They shall, above all, enjoy the good pleasure of Allah. That is the great achievement. Yeah, <laughs> وَمَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمُ وَبِئْسَ الْمَصِيرِ O Prophet, strive against the unbelievers and the hypocrites and be severe to them. Hell shall be their abode. What an evil destination. O Prophet, this marks the beginning of the third discourse of the Surah comprising verses 73 to 129, which was revealed after the expedition to Tabuk. Strive against the unbelievers and the hypocrites, and be severe to them. So far, the hypocrites had mainly been treated with tolerance and forbearance for two reasons. First, the Muslims could not afford to open a front against the enemies within, while they were involved in a fight against the enemies without. Second, this policy was intended to provide an opportunity to those in the ranks of the hypocrites who were merely victims of doubt and skepticism, but were not incorrigibly corrupt. It was conceivable that some belonging to this category might attain genuine belief and conviction in Islam. Neither of these two reasons existed any longer. The Muslims held sway over virtually the whole of Arabia, and in fact a new phase of conflict with powers outside Arabia had just begun. To strike a severe blow at the enemy within had, therefore, become both possible and necessary. This step was necessary in order to prevent the internal enemies from collaborating with the external enemies and so create a difficult situation in the Muslim body politic. 
The hypocrites had already been granted respite for a full nine years, during which time they had had every opportunity to see, think about, make their judgments on Islam. They could have made good use of this long period of respite if they had even the slightest ability to accept the truth. The Qur'an therefore declared that in addition to waging jihad against the unbelievers, the Muslims should also wage jihad against the hypocrites and should henceforth treat them severely. This declaration thus marked the end of the period of leniency shown to the hypocrites. The directive to wage jihad against the hypocrites and to show severity to them did not mean that Muslims should start a war against the hypocrites. Rather, the directive meant that Muslims should no longer be indulgent toward the hypocrites' nefarious activities. The previous policy of overlooking their hypocrisy had allowed the hypocrites to be considered by the generality of Muslims as part of the Muslim body politic, which in turn had enabled them to meddle in the affairs of the Muslim society and inject their poisonous influence into it. The present directive marked the end of that policy. From now on, if anyone adopted a hypocritical attitude whilst living in the midst of Muslims, their behavior clearly showed that they owed allegiance neither to God nor to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Such people should be fully exposed, be subjected to public censure, be deprived of the influence and authority they had enjoyed before, be socially ostracized, and be excluded from consultation in matters relating to the affairs of the Muslim community nor should their witness be accepted in the courts. They should also be barred from holding public office. No deference should be shown to them on social occasions. Muslims should treat them in a way which would make them realize they had lost their prestige in the Muslim society and that no Muslim held them in esteem. If any hypocrite committed treachery, no connivance should be shown to his crime. Rather, he should be tried publicly and be awarded a befitting punishment. This was a timely directive for its absence could well have led to the disintegration of the Islamic society. For a community that breeds hypocrites and traitors in its midst and holds them in esteem will inevitably face moral degeneration and ultimately total destruction. Hypocrisy is like a plague and the hypocrite is the carrier of those germs, infecting people all around. If the rats, hypocrites carrying the germs of plague are allowed to move about freely, this would expose the entire population to grave risk. If hypocrites hold respectable positions in society, this might motivate others to follow suit and encourage them to commit downright treachery. Such a situation is likely to make many a person entertain the idea that sincerity, honesty, and true faith do not contribute to a person's success. All one has to do is make a verbal declaration of faith and then go about doing as one pleases and nothing will prevent one from flourishing. The Prophet, peace be upon him, alluded to this pithily in one of his sayings. He who shows respect to one who introduces an innovation in Islam lends a hand to the demolition of Islam. يَتُوبُ يَكُ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ وَإِن 
They swear by Allah that they said nothing blasphemous whereas they indeed blasphemed and fell into unbelief after believing and also had evil designs which they could not carry into effect. They are spiteful against Muslims for no other reason than that Allah and His Messenger have enriched them through His bounty. So if they repent, it will be to their own good. But if they turn away, Allah will sternly punish them in this world and in the hereafter. None in the world will be able to protect or help them. That they said nothing blasphemous, whereas they indeed blasphemed. There is no certainty about what constitutes the word of unbelief mentioned in the above verse. However, there are references and traditions to the many blasphemous utterances of the hypocrites. For example, a hypocrite is reported to have told his Muslim relatives, If the message delivered by him, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is really genuine, then we are worse than donkeys. According to another report, during the expedition to Tabuk, when a she-camel of the Prophet, peace be upon him, went astray, and the Muslims set about searching for it, a group of hypocrites made much fun of the incident, saying to one another, Just look at this man. He brings us news about the heavens, but cannot tell where his she-camel is. And also had evil designs, which they could not carry into effect. This alludes to the conspiracies contrived by the hypocrites during the expedition to Tabuk. One of these, according to traditionists, was that the hypocrites had planned to throw the Prophet, peace be upon him, into a ravine during his return from Tabuk. On learning of this evil design, the Prophet, peace be upon him, directed his army to take a longer route through the valley while he himself followed a shorter route together with Ahmad bin Yasir and Hudayfa bin al-Yaman. During his journey, the Prophet, peace be upon him, came to know that about a dozen masked hypocrites were in pursuit of him. As soon as this was known, Hudefa hastened towards them with the intention of driving them away. The hypocrites spotted this from afar and were afraid. In addition, fearing that they would be identified, they immediately took to their heels. Another conspiracy hatched by the hypocrites was that they secretly decided that as soon as the news would come that the Muslim army had been defeated by the Romans, they would install Abdullah bin Ubay as the ruler of Medina. They went about planning for this since they had not even a shred of doubt that the Muslim army was doomed. They are spiteful against Muslims for no other reason than that Allah and His Messenger have enriched them through His bounty. Prior to the migration of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Medina, Yathrib, was a small Arabian town and the Aus and Khazraj, the two main clans inhabiting the town, did not enjoy any extraordinary position of authority or affluence. However, within eight or nine years of the Prophet's migration, during which the Ansar exposed themselves to every kind of risk and danger and extended their full support to the Prophet, peace be upon him, Medina became the capital of the whole of Arabia. The farmers belonging to the Aus and Khazraj clans became, as it were, the notables of the new society and administered the newly founded state. Medina was flooded with affluence as a result of the conquests made by the Muslims and the attendant overflow from the spoils of war and the prosperity of trade and commerce. 
Alluding to this, the Quran reproaches the hypocrites, who instead of being grateful to the Prophet, peace be upon him, through whom they had achieved such prosperity, directed their spite and anger towards him. Some of them made a covenant with Allah. If Allah gives us out of His bounty, we will give alms and act righteously. Then, when he gave them out of his bounty, they grew niggardly and turned their backs upon their covenant. They grew niggardly and turned their backs upon their covenant. The ingratitude of the hypocrites for which they were rebuked, see verse 74 above, is evident from their conduct. Reference has been made to this in order to emphasize that the hypocrites were a bunch of die-hard criminals who lacked even the most rudimentary virtues such as gratefulness, acknowledgement of beneficence, and faithfulness to covenants. So, he caused hypocrisy to take root in their hearts and to remain therein until the day they meet him because they broke their promise with Allah and because they lied. Are they not aware that Allah knows what they conceal and what they secretly discuss and that Allah has full knowledge even of all that is beyond the reach of perception? الذين يلمزون المطوعين من المؤمنين في الصدقات والذين لا يجدون إلا جهدهم والذين لا يجدون إلا جهدهم فيسخرون منهم سخر الله منهم ولهم عذاب أليم as for those who taught the believers who voluntarily give alms and scoff at those who have nothing to give except what they earn through their hard toil, Allah scoffs at them in return. A grievous chastisement awaits them. They scoff at those who have nothing to give except what they earn through their hard toil. This refers to the stinginess of the hypocrites in response to the appeal of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to make contributions to the war fund on the occasion of the expedition to Tabuk. Not only that, they even made fun of the sincere believers when they gave generously. About each of them they had something to say. If wealthy Muslims donated a large amount, an amount which was in accord with or beyond their means, they accused them of insincere ostentation. And if the poor Muslims donated modest amounts out of their hard-earned income, they scoffed, saying, 
Look, here is the farthing that will help conquer the forts of the Roman Empire. استغفر لهم أو لا تستغفر لهم إن تستغفر لهم سبعين مرة فلن يغفر الله لهم ذلك بأنهم كفروا بالله ورسوله والله لا يهدي القوم الفاسقين O Prophet, it is the same whether or not you ask for their forgiveness. Even if you were to ask for forgiveness for them seventy times, Allah shall not forgive them. That is, because they disbelieved in Allah and His Messenger, and Allah does not bestow His guidance on such evil-doing folk. فَرِحَ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ بِمَقْعَدِهِمْ خِلَافَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَكَرِهُوا وَكَرِهُوا أَن يُجَاهِدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَقَالُوا وَقَالُوا لَا تَنْفِرُوا فِي الْحَرِّ قُلْ نَارُ جَهَنَّمَ أَشَدُّ حَرَّا لَوْ كَانُوا يَفْقَهُونَ Those who were allowed to stay behind rejoiced at remaining behind and not accompanying the Messenger of Allah. They were averse to striving in the way of Allah with their belongings and their lives and told others, Do not go forth in this fierce heat. Tell them, the hell is far fiercer in heat. Would that they understand. فَلْيَضْحَكُوا قَلِيلًا وَلْيَبْكُوا كَثِيرًا جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ Let them then laugh little and weep much at the contemplation of the punishment for the evil they have committed. فَإِنْ رَجَعَكَ اللَّهُ إِلَىٰ طَائِفَةٍ مِّنْهُمْ فَاسْتَأْذَنُوكَ لِلْخُرُوجِ فَقُلْ لَنْ تَخْرُجُوا فَقُلْ لَنْ تَخْرُجُوا مَعِيَ أَبَدًا وَلَنْ تُقَاتِلُوا مَعِيَ عَدُوًّا إِنَّكُمْ رَضِيتُمْ بِالْقُعُودِ أَوَّلَ مَرَّةٍ فَقُعُدُوا مَعَ الْخَالِفِينَ Then, if Allah brings you face to face with a party of them, and they ask your leave to go forth to fight in the way of Allah, tell them, You shall not go forth with me, and shall never fight against any enemy along with me. You were well pleased to remain at home the first time, so now continue to remain with those who have stayed behind. إنهم كفروا بالله ورسوله وماتوا وهم فاسقون. Do not ever pray over any of them who dies, nor stand over his grave. They disbelieved in Allah and his messenger and died in iniquity. They disbelieved in Allah and his messenger and died in iniquity. 
Abdullah bin Ubay, the ringleader of the hypocrites, died sometime after the Prophet's return from Tabuk. His son, Abdullah bin Abdullah bin Ubay, who was a sincere believer, called on the Prophet, peace be upon him, and requested him to give his gown away so that it might be used as a shroud for Abdullah bin Ubay's burial. The Prophet, peace be upon him, generously acceded to this request. Abdullah also requested the Prophet, peace be upon him, to lead the funeral prayer for Abdullah bin Ubay. Acting with the same magnanimous spirit, the Prophet, peace be upon him, promised to oblige. Although Umar tried to dissuade the Prophet, peace be upon him, from doing so in view of Abdullah bin Ubay's ignominious role in opposing Islam, the Prophet, peace be upon him, ignored his protest and did not mind praying for the forgiveness of this arch enemy of Islam. This was out of his mercy and tenderness, which embraced friend and foe alike. However, as soon as the Prophet, peace be upon him, rose to lead the funeral prayer, the above verse was revealed, forbidding him to do so. For a policy had already been laid down that no further allowance should be given to the hypocrites. They should no longer be allowed to flourish and that there should be a total abstention from anything that might encourage them. A rule which has been derived from this incident is that the leaders of the Muslim community should not lead or offer the funeral prayer of notorious sinners. After the revelation of the above verse, the Prophet, peace be upon him, used to inquire about the conduct of the deceased before leading any funeral prayer. If the deceased was a notorious sinner, he advised the relatives of the deceased to make alternative arrangements. وَلَا تُعْجِبَكَ أَمْوَالُهُمْ وَأَوْلَادُهُمْ إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ أَنْ يُعَذِّبَهُمْ بِهَا فِي الدُّنْيَا وَتَزْهَقَ أَنْفُسُهُمْ وَتَزْهَقَ أَنْفُسُهُمْ وَهُمْ كَافِرُونَ let not their riches or their children excite your admiration. Through these, Allah seeks to chastise them in this world, and that their lives will depart them while they are unbelievers. And whenever any surah is revealed in joining, believe in Allah and strive in His way along with His Messenger. The affluent among them ask you to excuse them, saying, Leave us with those who will sit back at home. They were content to stay behind with the women folk. Their hearts were sealed, leaving them bereft of understanding. Their hearts were sealed, leaving them bereft of understanding. It was indeed shameful of the hypocrites that despite their physical fitness and material resourcefulness, they failed to go to the battlefront to take part in the jihad. And this though they were behind none in claiming to be Muslims. They preferred to stay back in their homes like women when they should have been on the battlefield at that critical moment. Since they had deliberately adopted this stance, they were stripped of those noble feelings which makes a man ashamed of his unbecoming conduct.
لكن الرسول والذين آمنوا معه جاهدوا بأموالهم وأنفسهم وأولئك لهم الخيرات وأولئك هم المفلحون But the messenger and those who shared his faith strove with their belongings and their lives. It is they who shall have all kinds of good. It is they who shall prosper. Allah has prepared for them gardens beneath which rivers flow. There shall they abide. That is the supreme triumph. وَجَاءَ الْمُعَذِّرُونَ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ لِيُؤْذَنَ لَهُمْ وَقَعَدَ الَّذِينَ كَذَبُوا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ سَيُصِيبُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ Many of the Bedouin Arabs came with excuses, seeking leave to stay behind. Thus, those who were false to Allah and His Messenger in their covenant remained behind. A painful chastisement shall befall those of them that disbelieved. Many of the Bedouin Arabs came with excuses. The word Al-Arab refers to the Bedouin who either lived in the desert or in the villages around Medina. A painful chastisement shall befall those of them that disbelieved. If a man's profession to faith is not backed by a true affirmation of the message of the Prophet peace be upon him, submission to God and sincerity in devotion, it is merely an act of the tongue which does not prevent him from according precedence to his material interests and worldly concerns over God and the religion of God. Such a profession of faith is no better than unbelief. Such people will, therefore, be treated by God in the hereafter as unbelievers and rebels. This is notwithstanding the fact that it might not be possible in this world to declare them unbelievers since they verbally profess Islam and hence Muslims will have no option but to treat them on a social and legal level as Muslims. This is because in the life of this world people can be declared unbelievers only when they are guilty of open denial, rebellion, treachery or infidelity. Hence it is difficult to judge all hypocrites from a legal point of view as unbelievers. But escaping the judgment of human beings in this world does not guarantee man's escape from God's judgment and punishment in the next world. ما على المحسنين من سبيل والله غفور رحيم There is no blame on the weak nor the sick nor on those who have no means for jihad if they stay behind provided that they are sincere to Allah and to His Messenger. There is no cause for reproach against those who do good. 
Allah is all forgiving, ever merciful. If they stay behind, provided that they are sincere to Allah and to His Messenger. This makes it clear that even those who are otherwise apparently exempt from jihad are in fact not automatically so on grounds of physical disability, sickness or indigence. They're exempt only when these disabilities are combined with their true loyalty to God and His Messenger. If someone lacks this loyalty, he cannot be pardoned for the simple reason that when it became obligatory for him to wage a jihad, he was sick or indigent. God does not look at such external criteria for exemption from duty. For God can examine what is at the bottom of each man's heart. He can examine both inner and outer conditions and test whether one's excuse is that of a loyal servant or of a rebel and traitor. If several persons happen to fall sick on the eve of jihad, it will hardly be possible for a human being to distinguish the sickness of one from that of the other. But God knows well that each case is different from the other. For instance, there will be those who, if they fall sick on the eve of jihad, will thank the heavens for their sickness, since it has provided them with a timely excuse to stay away from the war front. There will be others who react quite differently. They will probably lament their sickness which has prevented them from doing their duty and from having the honor of taking part in jihad. Whereas the people of the former category will not be content with securing an exemption for themselves from fighting, but will probably also try to dissuade others from jihad. There will be others who, even though they themselves are unable to take part in jihad for reasons beyond their control, will urge others to hasten to the war front. Likewise, while people belonging to the first category will spread all kinds of rumors in order to demoralize the believers, the people of the latter category will try to compensate for their inability by reinforcing the home front and thus at least make some contribution to the cause of jihad. Though people of both categories fail to join jihad, God will judge them differently in view of their different attitudes. God might pardon the latter, but the former must be convicted for treachery and disloyalty even though both could present a justifiable excuse for not engaging in jihad. وَلَا عَلَى الَّذِينَ إِذَا مَا أَتَوْكَ لِتَحْمِلَهُمْ قُلْتَ لَا أَجِدُ مَا أَحْمِلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ تَوَلَّوْا وَأَعْيُنُهُمْ تَفِيضُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ حَزَنًا أَلَّا يَجِدُوا مَا يُنْفِقُونَ nor can there be any cause for reproach against those who, when they came to you demanding mounts to go to the battlefront, but who went back, their eyes overflowing with tears when you told them that you had no mounts for them, grieving that they had no resources to enable them to take part in fighting. Grieving that they had no resources to enable them to take part in fighting. Those who had a sincere desire to serve Islam but could not do so owing to some genuine reason feel as grief-stricken as a worldly person does when he has been afflicted of misfortune, such as when he loses his job or narrowly misses a treasure. Such persons would be deserving of the same reward from God as those who actually did serve the cause of Islam. For even though they might not have been able physically to contribute to the struggle in the way of God, their hearts were there. This explains why the Prophet, peace be upon him, whilst returning from Tabuk, told the companions, 
you have never undertaken a march nor crossed a valley, but that some people who are actually in Medina were with you. In utter surprise they asked, Did they do so while they were staying in Medina itself? The Prophet, peace be upon him, affirmed, Yes, they did so even while staying in Medina, for they had been forced by circumstances into staying back, or else they would have never stayed back. <laughs> There are grounds for reproach against those who seek leave to stay behind, even though they are affluent. They are the ones who were content to be with the women folk who stay behind. Allah has set a seal on their hearts, leaving them bereft of understanding. يَعْتَذِرُونَ إِلَيْكُمْ إِذَا رَجَعْتُمْ إِلَيْهِمْ قُلْ لَا تَعْتَذِرُوا لَن نُؤْمِنَ لَكُمْ قَدْ نَبَّأَنَا اللَّهُ مِنْ أَخْبَارِكُمْ وَسَيَرَى اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ وَرَسُولُهُ ثُمَّ تُرَدُّونَ ثُمَّ they will put up excuses before you when you return to them. Tell them, make no excuses. We will not believe you. Allah has already informed us of the truth about you. Allah will observe your conduct and so will His Messenger. Then he will be brought back to him who knows alike what lies beyond human perception and what lies within the reach of human perception. And he will let you know what you did. <laughs> وَمَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمُ جَزَاءً بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ When you return to them, they will surely swear to you in the name of Allah that you may leave them alone. So do leave them alone. They are unclean. Hell shall be their home, a recompense for what they did. That you may leave them alone. So do leave them alone. Two different verbal forms of the same word, irad, have been used in this verse. In the first instance, it denotes to turn away in the sense of being indulgent. In the second instance, it means to turn away in disgust. The word has been used in an imperative form and contains the injunction to sever all connections with those persons. <laughs> They will swear to you in order to please you, but even if you become pleased with them, Allah will not be pleased with such an evil doing folk. The 
The Bedouin Arabs surpass all in unbelief and hypocrisy and are most likely to be unaware of the limits prescribed by Allah in what He has revealed to His Messenger. Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. The word Al-Arab, as we have explained earlier, see note 90 above, signifies the Bedouin, whether of the desert or the countryside in the vicinity of Medina. For a long time they had followed a policy of opportunism with regard to the conflict between Islam and unbelief. However, as Islam established its sway over the greater part of Hijaz and Najd, and the power of the tribes hostile to Islam began to weaken, they saw their interest lay in entering the fold of Islam. Of them, only a minority embraced Islam out of true conviction and with the readiness to fulfill its demands. For a majority of these Bedouin, acceptance of Islam was the outcome of sheer expediency and self-interest, sincere belief playing scarcely any part in it. They were primarily interested in the advantages that accrue to those belonging to the ruling party, but they were intensely resentful of practically everything relating to Islam. They were resentful of the moral discipline which Islam imposed on them. They were unhappy with the duty placed upon them to observe fasting. They were unhappy at the imposition of zakah on their cattle and agricultural produce. They were also disconcerted by the tight grip imposed by the many regulations which they were required to follow for the first time in their history. They also resented the idea of sacrificing their lives and property, not in connection with tribal feuding or razias, which were close to their hearts, but in the way of God. Thus a deep sense of dissatisfaction continued to smolder in the Bedouins' hearts, and a great number of them invented ever new excuses to circumvent the requirements of Islam. They were a cynical lot who cared nothing for right and wrong or for the true welfare of humanity. Theirs was a small world, confined essentially to their economic interests, their conveniences and privileges, their lands and properties, their camels and goats, and the very limited world around their tents. If they did believe in anything higher, it was a kind of superstitious reverence for saints and holy men to whom they made offerings. In return for those offerings, they were supposed to guarantee them material prosperity and immunity from natural calamities. They were also expected to provide them with amulets and pray for their worldly success. Such was their outlook, and they could not subscribe to a faith that would seek to subject their entire cultural, social, and economic life to a rigorous moral and legal discipline, and which would also ask them to sacrifice their lives and wealth in order to promote its universal reform mission. In the above verse, the Qur'an refers to this attitude of the Bedouin who, compared with town-dwellers, were relatively more prone to hypocrisy and unbelief. Town-dwellers fare better since they have the opportunity to meet learned and pious people and thus gain some knowledge of religion and its requirements. The Bedouin, however, tend to engross themselves in the pursuit of their bread and butter alone, leaving them no leisure time for higher pursuits. At the end of the day, they are no more than economic brutes, and as such are ignorant. In this context, it may be added that movements towards apostasy and the refusal to pay zakah, which broke out only a couple of years after the revelation of these verses, during Abu Bakr's caliphate, were mainly the result of the Bedouin's attitude. وَمِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مَنْ يَتَّخِذُ مَا يُنْ 
يُنْفِقُ مَغْرَمًا وَيَتَرَبَّصُ بِكُمُ الدَّوَائِرِ عَلَيْهِمْ دَائِرَةُ السَّوْءِ وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ And among the Bedouin Arabs, there are such as regard whatever they spend in the cause of Allah as a fine and wait for some misfortune to befall you. May ill fortune befall them. Allah is all hearing, all knowing. There are such as regard whatever they spend in the way of Allah as a fine. Essentially, the Bedouin looked upon zakah as a kind of fine or penalty imposed upon them. Likewise, they also resented the Islamic duty of showing hospitality to strangers. The same was true of the financial contributions they were required to make in connection with jihad. They made those contributions reluctantly and only with the idea of assuring the Muslims of their faithfulness rather than to please God. وَمِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مَنْ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَيَتَّخِذُ مَا يُنْفِقُ قُرُبَاتٍ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَصَلَوَاتِ الرَّسُولِ أَلَا إِنَّهَا قُرْبَةٌ لَهُمْ سَيُدْخِلُهُمُ اللَّهُ فِي رَحْمَتِهِ And of the Bedouin Arabs are those who believe in Allah and the last day and regard their spending in the cause of Allah as a means of drawing them near to Allah and of deserving the prayers of the Messenger. Indeed, this shall be a means of drawing near to Allah. Allah will surely admit them to His mercy. Allah is all-forgiving, ever-merciful. وَالسَّابِقُونَ الْأَوَّلُونَ مِنَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ وَأَعَدَّ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ وَأَعَدَّ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي تَحْتَهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْعَظِيمُ And of those who led the way, the first of the emigrants, muhajirun, and the helpers, ansar, and those who followed them in the best possible manner, Allah is well pleased with them, and they are well pleased with Allah. He has prepared for them gardens beneath which rivers flow. Therein they will abide forever. That is the supreme triumph. وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مُنَافِقُونَ وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَدُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمُهُمْ نَحْنُ نَعْلَمُهُمْ سَنُعَذِّبُهُمْ مَرَّتَيْنِ ثُمَّ يُرَدُّونَ إِلَىٰ عَذَابٍ عَظِيمٍ As for the Bedouin Arabs around you, some are hypocrites. 
and so are some of the people of Medina who have come inured to hypocrisy. You do not know them, but we know them. We will inflict double chastisement on them, and then they shall be returned to an awesome suffering. You do not know them, but we know them. The hypocrites had become so adept at keeping their hypocrisy hidden that despite his unusual insight, even the Prophet, peace be upon him, could not quite see through them. We will inflict double chastisement on them, and then the double punishment mentioned in this verse will consist of the following. First, instead of gaining wealth, prestige, and honor, the hypocrites will suffer worldly losses and be subjected to humiliation even though it is their excessive love of the world which led them to hypocrisy and rebellion against God. Second, the cause of Islam, which they seek to frustrate by their evil machinations, will flourish before their very eyes and despite their vicious efforts to the contrary. وَآخَرُونَ اعْتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ خَلَقُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخَرَ سَيِّئًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ There are others who have confessed their faults. They intermix their good deeds with evil. It is likely that Allah will turn to them in mercy, for Allah is all forgiving, ever merciful. O Prophet, Take alms out of their riches and thereby cleanse them and bring about their growth in righteousness and pray for them. Indeed, your prayer is a source of tranquility for them. Allah is all-hearing, all-knowing. Are they not aware that it is Allah who accepts the repentance of His servants and takes alms and that it is Allah who is oft relenting? Ever merciful. وَقُلْ اِعْمَلُوا فَسَيَرَ اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَسَتُرَدُّونَ إِلَىٰ عَالِمِ الْغَيْبِ وَالشَّهَادَةِ فَيُنَبِّئُكُمْ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ تَعْمَلُونَ And tell them, O Prophet, keep working. Allah will behold your works and so will His Messenger and the believers. And you shall be brought back to Him who knows that which is beyond the reach of human perception and that which is within the reach of human perception. He will then declare to you all what you have been doing. Allah will behold your works and so will His Messenger and the believers. The above Quranic verse brings into sharp relief the difference between the attitudes of a hypocrite and a sinful believer. In light of this, it has to be determined how Muslims should treat people whose claim to be Muslim is false.
The verse lays down that those who profess to be Muslims, but who in fact have no sincere allegiance to God, to the religion propounded by Him, and to the Muslim community, should be treated firmly and severely if their behavior provides incontrovertible evidence of this. If such people make contributions in the cause of God, they must not be accepted. Nor may the believers, however closely related they be, perform the funeral prayers of such persons and pray for their forgiveness. But if an otherwise sincere believer commits an act inconsistent with the requirements of sincerity and confesses to it, he should be forgiven. The charity offered to him should be accepted and prayers should be made to God for his forgiveness. The question arises, how can a sinful believer be determined from a hypocrite when the act which has been committed is contrary to Islam and Muslims? In our view, the following criteria hinted at in these verses could be of help in making a distinction between a sinful believer and a hypocrite. A. A sinful believer would be inclined to confess his faults clearly rather than try to explain them away by presenting lame excuses and far-fetched explanations. B. The past record of the person concerned should be looked into to see whether or not insincerity towards Islam is a regular trait of character. If that record shows that he has, on the whole, been a righteous person, that his life is marked by sincere service to and sacrifice for the cause of Islam and Muslims, and by an eagerness to excel others in good deeds, it can be safely concluded that if he committed any offense, it was not because of lack of faith and sincerity, it was merely a lapse on his part and was presumably a temporary occurrence. C. However, a serious lapse on the part of a person necessitates that a keen eye should be kept on his post-repentant behavior. This is necessary to decide whether his confession of having committed a lapse and his repentance over it were merely an act of the tongue, or whether there was indeed a deep feeling of regret indicative of a change of heart. If there is convincing evidence of sincere regret and an earnest effort to make amends and his overall conduct shows that he wants sincerely to wipe out all traces of weakness in his faith, it will be concluded that his repentance is genuine. Such repentance can be considered evidence of his true faith and sincerity. Traditionists have mentioned the incident in which the Quranic passage in question was revealed. This is reproduced here in extenso since it helps to better understand the verses. According to the traditionists, the verses were revealed in connection with Abu Lubaba bin Abdul Mundir and his six companions' conduct. Abu Lubaba had embraced Islam as early as the occasion of the Bayah of Aqaba before the Prophet's migration to Medina and thereafter took part in the battles of Badr, Uhud and other military campaigns. At the time of Tabuk expedition, however, he succumbed to the evil propensities of self and stayed back from jihad without any real justification. The same was true of some of his companions who were otherwise quite sincere believers. After the Prophet's return from Tabuk and on coming to learn about God's proclamation regarding those who had failed to join jihad, Abu Lubaba and his companions were seized by an overwhelming feeling of remorse and shame. Even before they were asked to explain their conduct, they tied themselves to a pillar and vowed to abstain from food and sleep until they were either forgiven or met with death. They underwent this self-inflicted chastisement for several days with the result that they eventually fell down unconscious. 
Finally, on being told that God and his messenger had relented towards them, they went to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and told him that their repentance included giving away their house, the comfort of which had rendered them heedless to the duty of jihad in the way of God. The Prophet, peace be upon him, however, directed them not to give away their whole property. Giving away one-third of it was sufficient. They instantly gave away one-third, making it a vakf endowment. If one reflects on this incident, one will realize the kinds of weaknesses which are pardoned by God. Abu Lubaba and his companions were not chronic victims of insincerity. On the contrary, their past record showed that they were men of sincere faith. Moreover, they did not invent excuses to cover up their faults. Rather, they readily confessed it. Not only that, their subsequent actions made it abundantly clear that they were genuinely repentant and were eager for the atonement of their sins. These verses also embody an important point. In order to atone for one's sin, it is not enough to repent merely with one's heart and tongue, important though it is. True repentance should also be evident from one's action. One way to do this is to give away a part of one's wealth to charity. This would help get rid of the evil embedded in oneself which had prompted the sin in the first place and would increase the potential to return to the right way. For confessing to one's sin is not unlike the feeling of someone who falls into a pit. The shame and remorse felt indicate that one realizes the wretchedness of one's state of being at the bottom of the pit. The subsequent efforts to atone for one's sin by giving to charity and doing other good works amounts to an attempt to get out of the pit. He will then declare to you all what you have been doing. Man will ultimately be judged by God, and no act of his will will remain hidden from him. Even if a man succeeds in keeping his hypocrisy concealed and makes people believe that he is a sincere believer, this will not protect him from punishment for his hypocrisy. <laughs> There are others in whose regard Allah's decree is awaited. Whether He will chastise them or relent towards them, Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Whether He will chastise them or relent towards them, Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. The circumstances surrounding the cases of the persons referred to in the above verse were unclear. That is, it was not easy for the people to determine whether they belonged to the category of sinful believers or to that of hypocrites. Judgment on these cases was, therefore, deferred. This does not mean that God was in a state of doubt and indecision about them. What this statement means is that the Muslims could take a definite position about them only on the basis of sufficient and tangible evidence for judgments based on esoteric grounds have no validity. Only those judgments which are supported by tangible evidence and reasoning carry any weight. وَالَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا مَسْجِدًا ضِرَارًا وَكُفْرًا وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَإِرْصَادًا لِمَنْ حَارَبَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ مِنْ قَبْلُ 
Then there are others who have set up a mosque to hurt the true faith, to promote unbelief and cause division among believers, and as an ambush for one who had earlier made war on Allah and His Messenger. They will surely swear, we intended nothing but good, whereas Allah bears witness that they are liars. لا تقم فيه أبدا لمسجد أسس على التقوى من أول يوم أحق أن تقوم فيه فيه رجال يحبون أن يتطهروا والله يحب المطهرين Never stand therein Surely a mosque founded from the first day on piety is more worthy that you should stand in it for prayer. In it are people who love to purify themselves, and Allah loves those that purify themselves, and Allah loves those that purify themselves. Before the arrival of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in Medina, there lived a man called Abu Amir. He belonged to the Khazraj clan and had converted to Christianity. Being an ascetic and a scholar of the scriptures, Abu Amir was held in great esteem by the Bedouin of both Medina and the adjoining areas. His popularity among the masses was at its zenith when the Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived in Medina. But his religious scholarship and ascetic way of life, rather than assisting him to recognize the truth, in fact became a hindrance. The result was that Abu Amir not only failed to embrace Islam, but looked upon the Prophet, peace be upon him, as his rival in the field of religious leadership. In the beginning, Abu Amir cherished the hope that the hostile force of the Quraysh would be enough to nip Islam in the bud. But contrary to what he had expected, the Quraysh were badly routed in the Battle of Badr. After that event, he was unable to restrain himself. He moved out of Medina the same year and began to visit different tribes and incite them against Islam. In fact, he was one of the people whose vicious efforts instigated the Battle of Uhud. It is also said that he arranged for several pits to be dug in Uhud, and as we know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, fell into one of them during the course of the battle and was badly injured. Later, when the Battle of the Ditch Ghazwat al-Khandaq took place, he took a major role in provoking many of the tribes to join the forces that invaded Medina. In all the battles that took place thereafter right up to the Battle of Hunan, this Christian monk consistently allied himself with the forces of polytheism against Islam. In the end, he utterly despaired that any power in Arabia would be able to resist the stormy onslaught of Islam. He therefore turned to Rome and warned Caesar of the impending Islamic menace. It was because of his initial efforts that Caesar commenced his preparations to invade Arabia. And on knowing of such activity, the Prophet, peace be upon him, decided to preempt it by dispatching a military expedition to Tabuk. A group of hypocrites in Medina actively collaborated with Abu Amir in his efforts. They also supported Abu Amir's plan by taking advantage of his position as a clergyman. He should persuade Caesar as well as the Christian chiefs of northern Arabia to strike a deadly blow against Islam. 
On the eve of Abu Amir's departure to Rome, he was a party to a decision made by a group of hypocrites in Medina to erect a mosque of their own so that they could carry on their insidious activities under the garb of religion. They thought that this religious act, building a mosque, would provide the Muslim hypocrites, as distinct from the generality of Muslims, a safe meeting place for organizing themselves into a force that would carry on its activities without inviting any suspicion. The mosque was to serve as the center for hatching conspiracies against Islam, a center to which the agents of Abu Amir, carrying the latter's instructions, could come safely and stay in as travelers and holy men. The above verse, for instance 107, alludes to this vile conspiracy which lay behind the building of this mosque. At that time, there were two mosques in Medina, the Mosque of Quba, which was situated on the outskirts of the town, and the Prophet's Mosque, which was in the heart of Medina. There was, therefore, hardly any need for another mosque, nor were the Muslims of the day possessed of that naive religious zeal which prompts people to construct mosques as an act to ensure their heavenly rewards, even if there is no need or justification for it. Not only that, there seemed no reason to expect that the construction of a new mosque would yield any positive benefit. There were, in fact, reasons to believe that it would indeed be harmful. For a new mosque was likely to create dissensions in the ranks of the Muslims, and this is unacceptable under a sound Islamic dispensation. The hypocrites, knowing that there was no convincing justification for a new mosque, began to put forward flimsy grounds to justify their intent. They pleaded to the Prophet, peace be upon him, that such a mosque was necessary because of the difficulties of praying congregationally five times a day and particularly at night in cold and rainy weather. This was especially difficult for the old and the disabled who lived at some distance from the mosque of the Prophet, peace be upon him. When the mosque, called Masjid Dirar, constructed on such pietistic pretext was ready, the hypocrites approached the Prophet, peace be upon him, asking him to inaugurate the mosque by leading the prayer there. The Prophet, peace be upon him, declined, saying that he was preoccupied with the Tabuk expedition and asked them to bide their time. As the Prophet, peace be upon him, left for Tabuk, the hypocrites began hatching their conspiracies against Islam in the new mosque. They even decided that as soon as the Muslims were crushed by the Romans, that they were absolutely sure this was imminent, they would install Abdullah ibn Ubay as the ruler of Medina. But the outcome of the expedition was quite different from that which the hypocrites had expected, and it threw cold water on all their hopes. During his return, when the Prophet, peace be upon him, reached a place called Dhu Adan in the vicinity of Medina, the above verses were revealed. The Prophet, peace be upon him, immediately sent a few people to Medina with the directive to raise Masjid Dira to the ground before he even entered Medina. Is he then who has erected his structure on the fear of Allah and his good pleasure better? Or he who erects his structure on the brink of a crumbling bank so that it crumbles down with him into the hellfire? 
Allah does not bestow His guidance on the wrongdoing folk. Or he who erects his structure on the brink of a crumbling bank. The word jiruf used in the above verse applies in Arabic usage to the bank of a river or stream, the supporting ground of which has been washed out, rendering it hollow and leaving the surface standing without any support. This simile describes adequately the situation of ungodly people. The structure of such people's lives is comparable to a building which is constructed on the riverbank, which has been rendered hollow by water and hence lacks foundations and strength. The simile is both apt and picturesque insofar as it brings sharply to mind a graphic enactment of the whole situation. Extending the above simile, it may be said that the outward facet of worldly life in which men of all sorts, the believers and the unbelievers, the sincere and the insincere, the pious and the sinners are found at work, resembles the upper surface of the land on which all buildings are erected. The upper surface is not stable in itself, since its stability depends on the support of compact soil beneath. If an ignorant, short-sighted person constructs his house on a piece of land of which the lower level has been rendered hollow by water, that construction will be fatal not only for that person, but will also make the capital invested by him in the construction of that house useless. In exactly the same way, a person's actions are as such insignificant. Actions are only meaningful and significant if their foundation is God-fearing if they are based upon belief in ultimate answerability to God and upon a commitment to follow the requirements of His good pleasure. Those simpletons who are satisfied with the external glitter of worldly life and whose actions are not prompted by God-fearing nor involve concern for God's good pleasure themselves cause the erosion of the lower layer of the soil under the building which they erect. The ultimate outcome of such an act is that the foundations are destroyed and the building collapses, bringing about the total undoing of the person concerned. Allah does not bestow His guidance on the wrongdoing folk. The straight way is the one that leads to the true success and felicity of man. And the structure which they have erected will ever inspire their hearts with doubts unless it be that their very hearts are cut into pieces. Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Unless it be that their very hearts are cut into pieces. They have committed hideous sins such as erecting Masjid Dirar and as a result their hearts have been saturated with unbelief and incapable of belief. The case of these people is more hopeless than that of those who publicly erect temples for worship or who declare war against Islam and take part in military action aimed at the extirpation of Islam. However iniquitous these declared unbelievers might be, there remains the hope that at some stage they may be guided to the right way. For even though they are misguided, their behavior shows that they are honest, sincere, and courageous in their convictions. All those who possess such valuable qualities can become great assets for the cause of true faith once they are able to reorient themselves. But there is no hope for those cowardly and crafty people who go so far as to build a mosque in order to undermine the cause of Islam, and who do so with the pretension of serving the cause of Islam. They will never be guided to the right way. 
Their cynical and utterly depraved behavior has undermined their capacity to appreciate the truth for its own sake. Inna Allah ashtara minal mu'minin anfusahum wa amwalahum bi'anna lahumul jannah يُقَاتِلُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَيَقْتُلُونَ وَيُقْتَلُونَ وَعْدًا عَلَيْهِ حَقًّا فِي التَّوْرَاةِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ وَالْقُرْآنِ وَمَنْ أَوْفَى بِعَهْدِهِ مِنَ اللَّهِ فَاسْتَبْشِرُوا بِبَيْعِكُمُ الَّذِي بَايَعْتُمْ بِهِ وَذَلِكَ هُوَ الْفَوْزُ الْعَظِيمُ Surely Allah has purchased of the believers their lives and their belongings and return has promised that they shall have paradise. They fight in the way of Allah and slay and are slain. Such is the promise He has made incumbent upon Himself in the Torah. and the Gospel, and the Qur'an. Who is more faithful to his promise than Allah? Rejoice then in the bargain you have made with him. That indeed is the mighty triumph. Allah has purchased of the believers their lives and their belongings, and return has promised that they shall have paradise. When a man has true faith, it involves a commitment to devote himself sincerely to God and God's promise of reward in return for that commitment. This two-way commitment has been described as a transaction. What this means is that faith is not just the affirmation of a set of metaphysical propositions. It is in fact a contract according to which man places all that he has, his life, his wealth, at the disposal of God. He sells them to God. In return, he accepts God's promise of paradise in the next life. In order to fully understand this point and its implications, it is necessary to explain the nature of the transaction mentioned in the verse. To start with, it is evident that God is the owner of all that man has, his life, his wealth, his everything, for he is the creator of man as well as all of his possessions. Viewed from this angle, any transaction of sale and purchase between man and God is strictly speaking out of the question. For man does not possess anything of his own which he might sell, nor is there anything which God does not own and which would necessitate purchase on his part. Nonetheless, God has bestowed upon man free will and freedom of choice, and this is the basis of the transaction mentioned above, as we shall see. The conferment of free will does not alter the basic reality of God's Godhead. However, it enables man to freely accept or reject the basic reality. Investing man with free will does not mean that man has hereby been made the absolute owner of himself, of his mental and physical abilities, and of the worldly possessions that he has come to acquire. Nor does it mean that God has conferred upon man the right to utilize his native abilities and material possessions as he pleases. The conferment of free will simply means that God does not compel man to behave in the manner prescribed by him. Hence man can follow one of the two courses, 
He can, if he so decides, recognize God as his true master and in consideration of that fact, use his native abilities and material possessions in the manner prescribed by God. On the other hand, he can, if he so decides, disregard God as his master, arrogate to himself mastery over himself, his abilities and material possessions, and hence consider himself entitled to use his abilities and possessions in the manner he pleases. It is here that the concept of transaction becomes relevant. The transaction referred to in the above verse should not convey the impression that God intends to purchase what man owns. For God is the true owner of all that man has. Hence the transaction concerns what God himself has granted man by way of trust and with regard to which God has given man the freedom to act either in good faith or contrary to it. It is this freedom which man holds in trust from God, which he asks man to recognize, and to do so purely of his own volition rather than compulsorily. Man is the trustee and not the absolute owner, and what he is asked to avoid, committing any breach of this trust which, by the nature of things, man is in a position to do. When someone voluntarily makes a bargain with God, committing his life in this manner, surrendering to God the freedom which God himself has conferred upon him, then God recompenses him for his voluntary relinquishment of freedom by granting him paradise in the never-ending life of the hereafter. It is the believer who, by making such a commitment with God in expectation of reward, enters into a transaction with God. Such is the substance of the transaction that it is equivalent with faith itself. Conversely, when someone refuses to make this transaction and behaves in a manner which is inconceivable with such a transaction, then this person is an unbeliever. The technical term applied to this refusal to make the transaction is unbelief, gufar. Having considered the nature of the transaction, let us now consider its implications. A. God has presented man with two severe tests. First, the conferment of freedom tests man's mettle. Will he acknowledge the lordship of his creator and act gratefully towards him? Or will he prove to be ungrateful and rebellious? The second relates to whether or not man will put his trust in God, whether or not he will surrender his freedom and sacrifice his worldly advantages and pleasures in return for God's promise of paradise and eternal felicity in the next life. B. At this stage, a clear distinction ought to be made between two kinds of faith. Faith in one sense is required in order that a person be considered a member of the Muslim community. In its second sense, faith has a certain spiritual content because of which a person is considered to be a believer in the reckoning of God. Requirements of faith in the second sense are higher than of faith in the first sense. Faith in the first sense has, of necessity, a legal meaning. Hence, verbal profession of articles of faith suffice to make a man to be considered a Muslim in the legal sense. A Muslim may be declared to have gone out of the fold of Islam only if he does something which is flagrantly opposed to his profession of faith. As for the faith which is of value in the sight of God, its requirements are quite different. Even if a person observes prayer and fasting, that might not be deemed enough. 
For if a man considers himself the absolute master of his body and soul, of his heart and mind, of his wealth and resources, and of the different things which are under his control, deeming that he has the right to use them as he pleases, then such a person is not a believer in the sight of God, regardless of what others think of him. For such a person does not commit himself to the transaction mentioned in the present verse, and which the Quran considers to be at the very core of faith. To exert oneself and one's abilities and possessions in a way disapproved of by God, and not to exert them in the manner prescribed by Him, betray a false claim to faith. For such an attitude clearly shows that either the person concerned does not consciously sell his life and wealth to God, or that he still considers himself, despite the transaction he has made with God, the true owner of his possessions. C. This concept of faith enables us to make a clear distinction between Islamic and the un-Islamic ways of life. A Muslim who truly believes in God follows the will of God in all walks of life. At no time does his attitude betray any claim on his part to be independent of God. True, occasionally he will commit sins, but this is only a momentary lapse where he has overlooked the implications of his transaction with God. This transaction is not just meant for the personal lives of the believers. The collective lives of the believers should also reflect the implications and requirements of the transaction. The Muslim body politic must not pursue a course of action, whether it be political, economic or social, in disregard of the Islamic law. And if they ever lapse into the same kind of mistake as human beings are prone to do in their personal lives, they should again submit to God's will and abandon any claim of the right to act independently of God. For the very notion that man has the right to work in disregard of God, that he has the right to determine what he should do and what he should not do, is essentially an un-Islamic attitude, even if that attitude might be adopted by those called Muslims. D. The transaction in question binds man to adhere to the will of God alone so that it leaves no room for man to follow his own desires. To arbitrarily declare something to be the will of God and to follow it amounts to following one's own will rather than God's, and this militates against the basic terms of the transaction between man and God. Only those individuals and groups who derive guidance for their life as a whole from the book of God and the directives of his messenger can be truly considered faithful to the transaction made with God. These being the implications of the transaction with God, it is clear why the grant of reward by God to those men who live up to their commitment to Him has been deferred to the next life. For paradise is not given for merely professing that one has sold one's life and possessions to God. Rather, it is a reward for man's action in accordance with that profession. That is, Paradise is a reward granted to him who abstains from using his life and wealth as though he has the right to use them as he pleases. Thus the transaction will mature only when the life of man, the seller, will come to an end and it is proved that he did truly abide by the terms of the transaction he had made with God. Then, but not before, can it be decided how he should be recompensed. It will be illuminating to look at this matter by reference to its circumstantial context in the Qur'an. It occurs in connection with those who claim to be believers and yet had not lived up to that claim. When put to the test, 
They preferred not to sacrifice their time, wealth, material interests, and lives for the sake of God and His religion. They were either lazy, insincere, or downright hypocritical. The attitude demonstrated by these groups of people was subjected to a severe reproach in the Quran, and the people themselves were told unequivocally that faith does not consist of a mere verbal affirmation of God's existence and unity. True profession of faith rather amounts to affirming that one's life and wealth all belong to God alone. If some people do not sacrifice their lives and wealth in compliance with God's command and use those possessions in opposition to the will of God, their profession of faith is blatantly false. True believers are those who have sold their lives and wealth to God and regard Him as the sole master of all their possessions. Accordingly, they are willing to sacrifice their lives and wealth unquestioningly at His behest and refrain from expending their abilities or financial resources in disregard of His command. Such is the promise He has made incumbent upon Himself in the Torah and the Gospel and the Quran. The statement that the Torah, the Gospels, and the Quran assure paradise to the believers if they sell their lives and wealth to God has been called into question on the grounds that there is no trace of such a promise in the Torah and the Gospels. Insofar as the Gospels are concerned, this objection does not hold water. For Jesus, peace be upon him, makes numerous statements in the Gospels which substantively amount to what the Quran says here. Consider, for instance, the following. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10 He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10.39 and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Matthew 19.29 True, the Torah in its present form does not contain any explicit promise of paradise to those who sell their lives and wealth to God. The existing Torah is altogether shorn of the notion of life after death, of the day of judgment, and of divine reward and punishment, even though these doctrines have always formed an inextricable part of true faith. Absence of any reference to this promise in the Torah should not leave the impression that the original Torah did not contain such a promise. What really accounts for its omission in the extant Torah is that in the days of their all-round degeneracy, the Jews became too worldly and materialistic to conceive of any reward other than a worldly one. They therefore debased all reference in the scriptures to promises of reward for obedience by forcing upon those a worldly interpretation. As for the descriptions of paradise, they construed them to be descriptions of Palestine, the land of their dreams. Nevertheless, we find in the Torah such statements as the following. Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Deuteronomy 32, 6 When it comes to God's reward for being faithful to the covenant with him, it is interpreted by the Jews to mean Palestine. When a land flowing with milk and honey is mentioned, See Deuteronomy 6, 3. It is given a purely earthly interpretation. 
This anomaly can be explained by reference to the fact that the extant Torah is neither complete nor free from distortions since it embodies man's additions such as exegetical notes of theologians side by side with the word of God. In the Torah, extraneous elements have become so mixed up with the original divine revelation that it is simply impossible to distinguish the original divine elements from national traditions, racial prejudices and superstitions, dreams and aspirations and legal deductions. Those who constantly turn to Allah in repentance, who constantly worship Him, who celebrate His praise, who go about the world to serve His cause, who bow down to Him, who prostrate themselves before Him, who enjoin what is good and forbid what is evil, and who keep the limits set by Allah, announce glad tidings to such believers. Those who constantly turn to Allah in repentance. The word Ta'ibun used in the above verse may be translated literally as those who turn to God in repentance. However, the context in which this word occurs indicates that repentance is a recurring characteristic of believers. Implying that far from repenting once, they constantly turn to God in repentance. We have tried to convey this nuance in the translation of the verse. The need to repent time and time again stems from the fact that man is prone to become oblivious to the transaction which he has made with God. For by all appearances, it looks as though man himself is the master of his life and wealth. As compared with this, the notion that God is the true master of man's life and wealth seems abstract. A believer may therefore often lapse into momentary forgetfulness of his transaction with God and behave in a manner counter to its spirit. What marks out a true believer, however, is that at the very moment he becomes aware of his lapse, he repents over his obliviousness, his unconscious defiance of the requirements of the transaction he has made with God. Full of regret, he turns to his Lord asking for pardon and renews the commitment he has made to him. This recurrent turning to God in repentance, this constant striving to return to the course of obedience and submission, ensures the permanence and vitality of a person's faith. Given man's inherent frailties, it seems that had there been no repentance, it would have been virtually impossible for man to remain continually faithful to the terms of the transaction he has made with God. Hence, the believer has not been portrayed in the Qur'an as one who, once he adopts the course of obedience to God, never suffers a lapse. What is praiseworthy about the believer is that after every lapse he returns to the same course, obedience to God. Mentioning repentance as a characteristic of a believer is also quite significant in the present context. For in the preceding verses, the address was directed to those who had acted in a manner inconsistent with the requirements of their faith. Hence, after explaining the true nature and requisites of faith, they are told that turning to God in repentance is an unmistakable characteristic of the believer. 
Far from persisting in his deviation, no sooner does a believer become conscious of his lapse than he turns to God in repentance. Who go about the world to serve his cause. The word al-sayhun used in the text has been interpreted by some commentators of the Quran as al-sayimun. For instance, those who fast. Both Ibn Kathir and Qurtubi mention this as one of the meanings of the word al-sayhun, but that is an extended rather than a literal meaning of the word. The tradition in which the Prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have explained it to mean those who fast lacks authenticity. What therefore seems appropriate is to interpret the word al-sayhun in its literal sense, those who move about the earth in the cause of Allah. The addition of the words in the cause of Allah to qualify the words those who move about is quite justified. There are several instances in the Quran when a word has been used in its literal sense but which has also been qualified by its purpose, its being for the sake of God. One notable example is the use of the word infaq, which literally means to spend and is not restricted in Arabic usage to spending in the way of God. But that is the sense in which it has been used in the Qur'an even when there is no specific reference to that effect. Hence the word al-sayhun signifies all those who move about the earth for higher purposes rather than in mere pursuit of pleasure and enjoyment, who engage in journeys to seek the good pleasure of God, in journeys which are for the sake of jihad, in journeys for establishing and upholding God's religion, in journeys involving migration from a region under the dominance of unbelief, in journeys to spread the true faith, to reform men, to acquire useful knowledge, to observe the signs of God, or to seek a lawful livelihood. This characteristic of a believer, that he moves about in the cause of God, has been especially mentioned so as to emphasize to those who fail to join jihad despite their claim to be believers, that when a true believer is summoned to jihad, he simply cannot enjoy the cozy comfort of his home. On the contrary, a true believer moves about the earth and exerts himself so as to make the true religion prevail, and who keep the limits set by Allah. It is the characteristic of the believers that they faithfully observe the limits prescribed by God in all matters, whether these relate to doctrine or modes of worship, to ethics and morality, or to social, cultural, economic, or political life or to the laws of war and peace. They act both individually and collectively in strict conformity with the limits set by God. They neither transgress these limits by giving free rein to their desires, nor replace divine law by something man-made. To strictly guard the limits prescribed by Allah also means that those limits are enforced and none may be allowed to transgress. Hence, the true believers are those who not only themselves observe the limits prescribed by God, but also exert themselves so as to establish and safeguard those limits in the world and try to ensure that they are not violated. <laughs> وَلَوْ كَانُوا أُولِي قُرْبَى مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَصْحَابُ الْجَحِيمِ After it has become clear that they are condemned to the flaming fire, it is not for the Prophet and those who believe to ask for the forgiveness of those who associate others with Allah in His divinity. 
even if they be near of kin, after it has become clear that they are condemned to the flaming fire. If a person prays to God for someone's pardon, it implies, first of all, sympathy and concern for the offender, and a belief that the offense is pardonable. Such an attitude towards an offender who is otherwise faithful is quite all right. But to sympathize with and love those who have indulged in open rebellion, and to consider that rebellion pardonable, is quite a different manner. Such an attitude is not only wrong in principle, but leaves one's loyalty open to doubt. Were we to pray for someone's pardon merely on grounds of kinship, it would mean that we hold our tie of kinship to be more important than our loyalty to God. It also shows that our loyalty to God is not unallied, for we desire that God should be influenced by the love we have for His rebels, that He should at least pardon our relatives, even if He hurls all other criminals into hell. All such things are wrong, are inconsistent with the dictates of sincere devotion and loyalty to God, and are discordant with the spirit of true faith, which requires absolute love and devotion to God. True faith requires that we should consider God's friends as our friends, and God's enemies as our own enemies. It is significant that the verse in question does not say that Muslims should not seek pardon for those who ascribe divinity to others than God. The verse rather characterizes it as something unbecoming of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the believers. Al-Tawbah 9.113 What is thus suggested is that the believers themselves should have such loyalty and sincerity for God that it prevents them from entertaining any sympathy for those who have rebelled against Him. It is noteworthy that the words of the verse are it is not fitting for the prophet and those who believe that they should pray for forgiveness for those who ascribe divinity to others than Allah. The expression seems to say to people, what good is there if you refrain from praying for forgiveness for such people because we asked you not to? Nay, your religious commitment and your conscience should be so sensitive about such matters as to make you instinctively feel that it is not befitting for you at all to sympathize with the rebels of God or to consider their crime pardonable. It may, however, be clarified that the kind of sympathy which is forbidden those who have rebelled against God is sympathy which interferes with and prevents one from fulfilling one's religious obligations. So far as human sympathy is concerned, consideration, compassion, and affection, far from it being forbidden, it is praiseworthy for a believer to possess such attributes. The worldly obligations that one owes to one's kinsmen, whether they are believers or unbelievers, must be fulfilled. Likewise, those in distress, the needy, the sick, the injured, the orphans, must be helped irrespective of their religious faith. In such matters, any discrimination between a believer and an unbeliever is out of the question. And Abraham's prayer for the forgiveness of his father was only because of a promise which he made to him. Then, when it became clear to him that he was an enemy of Allah, he disassociated himself from him. Surely, Abraham, 
peace be upon him, was most tender-hearted, God-fearing, forbearing. And Abraham's prayer for the forgiveness of his father was only because of a promise which he made to him. Here allusion is made to the prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, who said to his unbelieving father as he severed his ties with him, Abraham said, Peace be to you. I will pray to my Lord for your forgiveness, for he is to me most gracious. Mariam 19.47 Accept the saying of Abraham to his father, I shall certainly pray for your forgiveness, though I have no power to get anything for you from Allah. Al-Mumtahana 64 It was in view of the above promise that Abraham, peace be upon him, prayed for his father's forgiveness. And forgive my father, for indeed he is among those gone astray. And do not disgrace me on the day when all men will be raised, the day when neither wealth nor children will avail, but only he will prosper, who brings to Allah a sound heart. Al-Shu'ara 2686-9 As for the prayer of Abraham, peace be upon him for his father's forgiveness, its guarded terms should be noted. Moreover, no sooner had Abraham realized that he was praying for the forgiveness of one who had publicly rebelled against God and who was hostile to the religion of God, than he gave up praying for his forgiveness. Also, as a true believer should do in such a situation, he disassociated himself from the person who had rebelled against God, even though that person was none other than his own father who had brought him up with much compassion and tenderness. Surely, Abraham, peace be upon him, was most tender-hearted, God-fearing, forbearing. The word Awah, used in respect of Abraham, peace be upon him, in the above verse, denotes a tender-hearted, lamenting, tearful, and wistful person. The other word which has been used here, Halim, denotes someone who can keep control over himself, who does not lose control of himself in anger, hostility, and opposition, and who does not transgress the limits of moderation in love and friendship. Both words have been very appropriately employed here for Abraham, peace be upon him, and convey a set of meanings. Abraham was very tender-hearted, Awah, so he shuddered at the very thought of his father ending up as fodder for hell, and hence he prayed for his forgiveness. At the same time, the fact that Abraham was a person who kept control over himself, Halim, is borne out by the fact that he prayed for his father even though the latter had perpetrated cruelties on him while trying to dissuade him from the way of Islam. Also being God-fearing and out of temperate disposition, Abraham was not carried away by feelings of love for his father to the extent of exceeding the appropriate limits. Realizing that his father had rebelled against God, Abraham disassociated himself from him, peace be upon him. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِلَّ قَوْمًا بَعْدَ إِذْ هَدَاهُمْ حَتَّى يُبَيِّنَ لَهُمْ مَا يَتَّقُونَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٌ It is not Allah's way to cause people to stray in error after He has guided them, until He has made clear to them what they should guard against. Surely, Allah knows everything, until He has made clear to them what they should guard against. In dealing with men, God first explains to them the doctrines and practices which they should shun. However, 
If they persist in their wrong ways, God withholds himself from guiding them and lets them follow the wrong ways they choose to follow. This verse embodies a basic principle which can help one understand all those Quranic verses in which both guiding people to the right way and causing people to go astray are mentioned as God's own acts. To provide guidance on God's part consists of enunciating the right way through His prophets and scriptures, and then enabling those who are willing to follow that way to do so. Likewise, God's act of causing people to go astray means that God does not compel those who insist on not following the right way after it has been made plain to them and enables them to proceed in the direction they have decided to proceed in. وَمَا لَكُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍّ وَلَا نَصِيرٍ Indeed, Allah's is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. He, it is who confers life and causes death. You have no protector or helper apart from Allah. لَقَدْ تَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ الَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُ فِي سَاعَةِ الْعُسْرَةِ الَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُ فِي سَاعَةِ الْعُسْرَةِ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا كَادَ يَزِيغُ قُلُوبُ فَرِيقٍ مِنْهُمْ ثُمَّ Surely, Allah has relented towards the Prophet and towards the Muhajirun, emigrants, and the Ansar, helpers, who stood by him in the hour of distress, when the hearts of a party of them had well nigh swerved. But when they gave up swerving from the right course and followed the Prophet, Allah relented towards them. Surely to them He is most tender, most merciful. Who stood by Him in the hour of distress. God pardoned minor omissions on the part of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions. The Prophet's lapse, see note 45 above, consisted of granting exemption to those who had sought his permission, although they were fully able to make jihad. Although the hearts of a party of them had well nigh swerved. This refers to some sincere and devoted companions who initially shrank from jihad. However, being genuine believers and true lovers of Islam, they were able to overcome their initial reluctance and fear. But when they gave up swerving from the right course and followed the Prophet, Allah relented towards them. This is an assurance that God will not take them to task for their momentary dereliction of duty. For God does not punish man for a weakness which does not manifest itself in action and which he himself is later able to overcome and correct. Allah 
And he also relented towards the three whose cases had been deferred. When the earth for all its spaciousness became constrained to them, and their own beings became a burden to them, and they realized that there was no refuge for them from Allah except in Him, He relented towards them that they may turn back to Him. Surely it is Allah who is much forgiving, ever merciful. And He also relented towards the three whose cases had been deferred. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, returned to Medina after the expedition to Tabuk, those who had stayed behind came to him offering all sorts of excuses for not having joined the expedition. Eighty of them were hypocrites, and only three were sincere Muslims. The hypocrites made lame excuses, which the Prophet, peace be upon him, accepted at their face value and excused them. Then came the turn of the three sincere Muslims who confessed their fault explicitly, without reference to extenuating circumstances. The Prophet, peace be upon him, deferred his decision on their cases and directed the Muslims not to have any association with them till God settled the matter. The present verse embodies the decision that God made in their case. It may be noted that this incident is different from the one mentioned earlier, whereby seven companions subjected themselves to punishment before their indictment. Surely, it is Allah who is much forgiving, ever merciful. The three companions referred to in this verse are those who stayed behind, Kaab bin Malik, Hilal bin Umayyah, and Murara bin Rabi. Apart from their firm belief in Islam and the many sacrifices they had earlier made in its cause, Hilal and Murara had also taken part in the Battle of Badr, an indubitable testimony of their unflinching faith in Islam. As for Kaab bin Malik, though he did not have the privilege of participating in the Battle of Badr, he had accompanied the Prophet, peace be upon him, on all other military campaigns. Notwithstanding their illustrious services to the cause of Islam in the past, they were reproached severely for having slacked off in their duty to join the jihad to which all the able-bodied Muslims had been summoned. After his return from Tabuk, the Prophet, peace be upon him, asked all Muslims to sever their ties with these three. Forty days later, even their wives were asked to part company with them. The anguish they then suffered in Medina, their hometown, has been graphically set forth in the above verse. After having undergone the tormenting social boycott for a full fifty days, they were eventually pardoned by God. The following is the incident as it was related by Kaab to his son, Abdullah, many years later when Kaab was old and blind, and Abdullah used to hold his hand to walk him around. Preparations for the expedition to Tabuk were afoot, and whenever the Prophet, peace be upon him, appealed to the Muslims to take part in jihad, I prepared myself to go forth. But on returning home, I would always say to myself that it was a bit early. When the time to depart would come, it would take me no time to get ready. Time passed by, and the hour for the army to proceed arrived, but I had not made my preparations. I said to myself, let the army move out and I will catch up with it in a day or two. But the same slackness prevented me from proceeding till the time for accompanying the others was past. What tormented me most was that the only persons with whom I had remained behind in Medina were either the hypocrites or the disabled whom God had excused from jihad. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, returned, he always used to go to the mosque first and pray two rakahs and then sit down to receive people. 
When the Prophet, peace be upon him, did so, those who had stayed behind came to him, making excuses and taking oaths to support their statements. In all there were more than eighty people. The Prophet, peace be upon him, accepted their apparent claims and let them take a pledge of fealty, bayah. He also prayed to God for their forgiveness. As to whether those statements were true or not, he left that to God's judgment. When my turn came, I went forth to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and greeted him. The Prophet smiled and said, What prevented you from going to jihad? I said, O Messenger of Allah, had I been sitting with any other person than you, I would have resorted to specious explanations to calm his anger, and so that my excuses would have been accepted before my leaving, for I have the gift of eloquence. But by God, I am sure that if I lie to gratify you, this would certainly bring God's wrath upon me. And if I tell you the truth, and this truth angers you, I seek only a felicitous end with God. For by God, I have no valid excuse. By God, never was I stronger and more resourceful than at the moment when I stayed back. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said, As for this one, he has indeed spoken the truth. So wait until God decides in your case. Some persons of the Salima tribe walked following me and said, By God, we did not know that you had sinned ever before. If you were incapable of making excuses to the messenger of God, peace be upon him, as the others who had stayed behind did, then the Prophet's prayer for your forgiveness would have been enough to efface your sins. They continually approached me until I thought of going back to the messenger of God, peace be upon him, and contradicting my own statement. Then I said to them, Did he, for instance, the Prophet, peace be upon him, receive the same kind of answer from any other person as he received from me? They said, Two other persons met the Prophet, peace be upon him, and both said like you said. They were told the same as you were told. I asked, Who are those two? They said, Murara ibn Rabi al-Imri and Hilal ibn Umayyah al-Waqifi. They thus spoke of two Muslims who took part in the battle of Badr and were exemplary men. When they mentioned to me the actions of these two, I firmed up my determination to maintain my truthful statement. Then the Prophet, peace be upon him, prohibited people to talk to the three of us from among those who had remained behind from jihad. So people avoided us. People changed towards us, so much so that the whole world seemed to have changed. It was no longer the same earth that I had known. We remained in this state for fifty nights. As for the two of my companions, they surrendered to the changed state of affairs, confined themselves to their houses, and wept continuously. But I was the youngest and the most persevering of them all. I used to go out, pray with the Muslims, go about the marketplace, and none would speak to me. I would visit the Prophet, peace be upon him, and greet him while he would be in his assembly after prayer, and I would ask myself, did he move his lips to answer the greeting or not? Then I would pray close to him and stealthily glance at him. When I began praying, he would look at me, but when I glanced at him, he turned his face away. When this harsh punishment from the Muslims continued for some time, I once climbed the wall of Abu Qatada. He was the son of my uncle and the dearest person to me and greeted him. By God, even he did not answer the greeting. I said to him, Abu Qatada, I ask you in the name of God, do I love God and his messenger, peace be upon him? He remained silent. I repeated the question, imploring him to answer. He again kept silent. Once again I repeated the question, imploring him to answer. 
He only said, God and his messenger, peace be upon him, know better. On hearing this, tears flowed from my eyes, and I climbed down the wall. While I was walking through the marketplace, a Nabataean of Syria, who had come to Medina to sell foodstuff, said, Who will lead me to Qab ibn Malik? People began to gesture, pointing in my direction, until he came to me and gave me the letter of the Ghassanid prince. Since I was a scribe, I read the letter, and to my surprise, I found in it the following message. I have come to learn that your companion, for instance, the Prophet, peace be upon him, has been harsh to you. God has not placed you in an abode of humiliation or in a position where your rights and dignity might be violated. Join us and we shall sympathize with you. When I read this, I said, This is also a test. So I headed to the baking oven and heated it up and threw the letter in it. And when forty of the fifty days passed and no revelation came, suddenly an envoy of the Prophet, peace be upon him, advanced towards me and said, The messenger of God orders you to stay away from your wife. I said, Should I divorce her or what should I do? He said, Just stay away from her. Do not be close to her. He also sent envoys to the other two companions, even as he had sent them to me. So I said to my wife, Go and stay with your family, and remain with them until God decides this matter. Then on the morning after fifty nights had passed, and when I had performed morning prayer on the roof of one of our houses, and was sitting in the state described by God in his book, the state in which my soul had become a burden, and the earth despite its vastness had become constricted for me, I heard suddenly the cry of a crier, Abu Bakr according to reports, who had climbed Sal, a mountain Medina, saying at the top of his voice, Qab ibn Malik, rejoice at the good news. I fell prostrate and knew that the moment of deliverance had come. The Prophet, peace be upon him, announced to people at the time of the morning prayer that God had accepted our repentance, and people went forth announcing the good news. I headed towards the messenger of God, peace be upon him, and crowds of people met us on the way, congratulating us on the acceptance of our repentance. When I entered the mosque and greeted the messenger of God, peace be upon him, he said, his face beaming with joy, Rejoice at the best day of your life, since your mother gave birth to you. I asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, Is this pardon from you or from God? The Prophet, peace be upon him, said, No, it is from God the Mighty, the Exalted. Then, as I sat before him, I said, O messenger of God, as a part of my repentance, I should give charity out of my wealth for the sake of God and his messenger. The prophet said, Retain a part of your property. That is better for you. I said, I will hold my share in Khabar. I continued, O messenger of God, God delivered me out of this trial because of my truthfulness. Now an aspect of my repentance is that I shall speak nothing but the truth as long as I live. Full as this incident is of lessons, it especially brings home the following points to every Muslim. First, that whenever there is a conflict between Islam and unbelief, it is imperative that a Muslim identify with Islam and actively participate in the struggle on its behalf. This is of such crucial importance that even if a Muslim fails to actively support Islam in such a struggle, let alone if he supports the forces of unbelief, that even if this happens just once in a lifetime and without any malfides, his lifelong record of righteous behavior and religious devotion are liable to go to waste.
The matter is so grave that even lapses of persons of proven integrity and faith, men who had actively participated in the battles of Badr, Ohud, Khandak, Ditch, and Hunan, were not condoned. Second, that any slackness in performing one's duty should not be taken lightly. For trivial slackness can lead to sins of a grave nature, and a Muslim cannot claim acquittal on the grounds that what lay at the core of the matter was slackness rather than any act with evil intent. The episode narrated above also provides us with a valuable insight into the spirit of the society which had developed under the able leadership of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The episodes show that on the one hand there were the hypocrites who were known for their treachery and yet their lame excuses were entertained and their failings overlooked. The reason for this had to do with the fact that no good was ever expected of them. Their treachery was too well known to elicit complaint. On the other hand, there was a limited number of trustworthy Muslims, persons of proven integrity, who were guilty of not participating in jihad. They confessed their fault and were subjected to a severe reproach. The reason for the treatment meted out to them was not that there was any doubt about the sincerity of their faith. The point of reproach was precisely that even though that they were sincere, they had behaved in a manner becoming only of a hypocrite. These sincere Muslims, to use the famous expression employed by Jesus, peace be upon him, were the salt of the earth. And if they themselves came bereft of salt, from where would one obtain it? What is particularly noteworthy about the incident is the behavior of both the leader and the followers, including the defaulters. The way in which the leader awarded the punishment, and the remarkable manner in which it was received by the defaulters, and again the manner in which the whole community enforced it, the role of each is so superb that one is hard to put to decide who occupies pride of place in the incident. The leader, no doubt, decided to pronounce a harsh punishment, but the spirit actuating his decision was that of love and compassion rather than of anger and hatred. His eyes seemed fiery like those of raging father, yet the corner of his eyes revealed that any hostility towards the defaulter were simply out of the question. It was his misbehavior that had wounded the heart. Were he to make amends, he would become as dear as he always was. The conduct of the defaulter was exemplary in its own way. He rids in pain at the harsh punishment awarded him, but that does not prompt him to swerve from the path of obedience, nor is he seized by a fit of arrogance and haughtiness. Not only does his attitude remain free from open effrontery to his leader, he does not even nurse a grievance against him in his heart. As a result of the incident, his love for and devotion to the leader is in fact increased. All through those fifty agonizing days, if there was one thing that he restlessly thirsted for, it was the glow of affection in the eyes of the Prophet, peace be upon him, which he cherished as his last source of hope. That look of affection in the Prophet's eyes was his last hope in life and was no less dear to him than a patch of cloud in the sky to a drought-stricken farmer. The exemplary discipline and the high moral spirit displayed by the whole Muslim community also calls for admiration. No sooner had the Prophet, peace be upon him, put the defaulter under reproach than all Muslims severed their ties with him. No one, not even his kith and kin and close friends, talked to him in private, let alone in public. Even his wife parted company with him. He implored them in the name of God to tell him if his integrity was suspect. But even his lifelong friends curtly told him to turn to God and to his messenger, peace be upon him, for the answer. 
The members of the Islamic community not only displayed a high level of discipline, but their moral standards were also so high that even during this crisis, not a single person slandered the defaulter who had fallen from grace. On the contrary, each member of the community felt a deep concern for his brother in disgrace and looked forward to his early redemption. And as soon as he was pardoned, each of them flocked to his house to heartily felicitate him. This constitutes the model of a righteous community, the community that the Qur'an seeks to establish in this world. Viewed from this background, the verse in question highlights the point that the pardoning of the three companions and the spirit of compassion and love shown them was the result of the high degree of sincerity displayed by them during their fifty-day ordeal. Had their offense been followed by a show of arrogance and haughtiness, and had they greeted the Prophet's award of punishment with anger and hostility, as does an egotist whose pride is wounded, the attitude of the community towards them would certainly have been different. Likewise, had the defaulters behaved during their period of punishment as though they would have preferred to leave the community rather than endure an action that hurt their pride, or if they had kept themselves busy during those fifty days trying to spread disaffection among the community and seeking to wean away the disgruntled elements from the Muslim body politic, then they would surely have been expelled once and for all from the fold of Islam. They would have been left to wander in the wilderness of their egotism, to engage in self-worship as they pleased, and be deprived forever of the honor to take part in the struggle to uphold the word of God. The three companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, however, behaved differently. Even though the options of rebellion and disobedience were obviously open to them, they proved by their action that their devotion to God was total, and that such devotion left no room for them to worship any other god, not even their own ego. Their conduct also made it plain that they were fully committed to the Muslim body politic, that regardless of what happened to them, there was no question of any backsliding. No matter how they were treated in the Muslim community, it was in that community that they would live and in it that they would die. They were willing to bear disgrace in their own community rather than consider the highest positions of honor and prestige outside it. Given this excellent conduct, was there any other course left for the community but to warmly embrace such men? This explains the compassion and kindness which characterizes verse 118 of the Qur'an which mentions the pardoning of these companions. Allah turned to them in mercy that they might turn to Him in repentance. The verse in question portrays graphically that their Lord had first turned His attention away from three fallen servants. But He saw that instead of running away, they remained at His portal with broken hearts. Moved by this show of loyalty, God's love and kindness was aroused to a state of rapturous passion. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu attaqu allaha wa kunu ma'as-sadiqeen. Believers, have fear of Allah and stand with those that are truthful. مَا كَانَ لِأَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ وَمَنْ حَوْلَهُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ أَنْ يَتَخَلَّفُوا عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَرْغَبُوا وَلَا يَرْغَبُوا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ 
It did not behove the people of Medina and the Bedouin Arabs around them that they should refrain from accompanying the Messenger of Allah and stay behind and prefer their own security to His. For whenever they suffer from thirst or weariness or hunger in the way of Allah, and whenever they tread a place which enrages the unbelievers, whenever anything of this comes to pass, a good deed is recorded in their favor. Allah does not cause the work of the doers of good to go to waste. وَلَا يُنْفِقُونَ نَفَقَةً صَغِيرَةً وَلَا كَبِيرَةً وَلَا يَقْطَعُونَ وَادِيًا إِلَّا كُتِبَ لَهُمْ إِلَّا كُتِبَ لَهُمْ لِيَجْزِيَهُمُ اللَّهُ أَحْسَنَ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Likewise, each amount they spend, be it small or large, and each journey they undertake shall be recorded in their favor, so that Allah may bestow upon them reward for their good deeds. وَمَا كَانَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لِيَنْفِرُوا كَافَّةً فَلَوْلَا نَفَرَ مِنْ كُلِّ فِرْقَةٍ مِّنْهُمْ طَائِفَةٌ لِيَتَفَقَّهُوا فِي الدِّينِ لِيَتَفَقَّهُوا فِي الدِّينِ وَلِيُنْذِرُوا قَوْمَهُمْ إِذَا رَجَعُوا إِلَيْهِمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَحْذَرُونَ It was not necessary for the believers to go forth all together to receive religious instruction. But why did not a party of them go forth that they may grow in religious understanding and that they may warn their people when they return to them so that they may avoid erroneous attitudes. And that they may warn their people when they return to them so that they may avoid wrongful attitudes. For a better appreciation of the above verse, it should be read in conjunction with verse 97 above. The Bedouin Arabs surpass in unbelief and hypocrisy, and are most likely to be unaware of the limits prescribed by Allah in what He has revealed to His Messenger. This verse states that the desert Arabs were generally victims of hypocrisy because of their ignorance. That being cut off from the centers of knowledge and unable to enjoy the company of scholars, they were ignorant of the limits laid down by Islam. In the present verse, the Muslims are told what steps they should take so as to remedy the situation. The directive that is given here is not to allow the Bedouin to remain steeped in their age-old ignorance. Systematic efforts should be made to remove their ignorance and to develop an Islamic consciousness among them. This did not necessitate the migration en masse of the Bedouin to Medina in quest of knowledge. Rather, a few drawn from each desert village and tribe were required to visit such seats of learning as Makkah and Medina, 
to study Islam and to try to create an awakening and consciousness among their people upon their return. It was an important and timely directive aimed at strengthening the Islamic movement. For in its earlier phase, when Islam was a new phenomenon and was pressing its way gradually through a hostile environment, there was no need for such a directive. In the early phase, anyone who embraced Islam did so after thoroughly understanding it and becoming fully convinced of its truth. However, when the Islamic movement gained momentum and established its hegemony on a piece of land, whole armies of people began entering its fold. Of these, only a few fully understood the implications and requirements of the Islamic faith. Many of them were prompted by the herd instinct, driven by the prevalent popular current towards Islam. This rapid spread of Islam was apparently a source of strength for Islam since the number of its adherents swelled day by day. However, a great many of those converts to Islam, devoid as they were of true Islamic consciousness and understanding and of the sincere spirit to follow its moral standards, were not very helpful for the Islamic order. On the contrary, such a development was harmful as became evident during the preparations for the expedition to Tabuk. The moment when the Islamic movement spread at such a pace was chosen by God to issue directives that would assist its consolidation as well. The way forward lay in educating and training people drawn from every section of the population so that on their return they may, in turn, educate and train their own people. If this could be done, it would ensure that Islamic consciousness and knowledge of Islamic injunctions would spread on a wide scale among the Muslims. A clarification in this connection seems necessary. The directive laid down in the verse does not simply aim at spreading literacy, at developing the capacity to read books. The verse rather enunciates the purpose to be promoting an understanding of Islam to the extent whereby people eschew an un-Islamic attitudes of life. This is the aim of education which God has laid down for Muslims for all times to come. This aim should serve as the criterion of success or failure of every educational effort that the Muslims may ever make. This does not mean that Islam is concerned with spreading literacy or developing basic educational skills or imparting worldly knowledge. What we wish to emphasize is that the distinctive educational objective of Islam is to impart an education that develops among Muslims a profound understanding of Islam. Even if all Muslims become highly educated and each of them attains the heights of scientific achievement as those of Einstein and Freud, such an education would be a curse according to Islam if it neither promotes among the Muslims a good understanding of Islam nor helps them refrain from un-Islamic attitudes. The actual words used in the verse are also quite significant. Unfortunately, in the later period of Muslim history, the purpose of the verse was misconceived and the effects of this misconception continue to vitiate the system of religious education, nay, the very religious life of the Muslims. To reiterate and clarify, the purpose of education as laid down in the verse is to develop an understanding of Islam to gain insight into its system, its nature and spirit, to develop mental attitudes and practical conducts which are in consonance with the spirit of Islam. Unfortunately, a serious misconception has found its way into the Muslim society. The Muslims at some stage in their history became convinced that the purpose of the verse was to encourage them to learn fiqh, jurisprudence, which is the root word used in the present verse and signifies understanding. Now jurisprudence gradually developed into a branch of knowledge and was called fiqh. 
It concerned itself with the external and formal rules of human conduct, without necessarily being concerned with their spirit and purpose. This concern with the formal rules of external behavior should have formed only a part of the Muslim's intellectual activity. But instead, it became an all-absorbing preoccupation. It would need volumes to speak of the harm done to Islam and Muslims by this intellectual deviation. Suffice it to say here that this misconception made the Muslims focus all their attention on the skeleton of Islam, as distinct from its spirit. This also bred a soulless religious formalism which was regarded as the zenith of Muslim religious life. يا أيها الذين آمنوا قاتلوا الذين يلونكم من الكفار وليجدوا فيكم غلظة واعلموا أن الله مع المتقين. Believers, fight against the unbelievers who live around you. And let them find in you sternness. Know that Allah is with the God-fearing. Believers, fight against the unbelievers who live around you. The above verse taken at face value might be interpreted to mean that the responsibility for fighting against the enemy falls in the first instance on Muslims who live nearest the enemy territory. However, on reading the verse in conjunction with the succeeding passage, it appears that the reference is to fighting against the hypocrites, the enemy within the Islamic society. The hypocrites were clearly established and their interaction with different sections of the Islamic population had caused much damage. It had already been urged in the opening part of the discourse that jihad should be waged in order to rid Islam of the internal enemy. The same directive is now being reiterated at the end of the discourse in order to shake Muslims into realizing the importance of the matter and to urge them to wage jihad to crush these enemies and to disregard all ethnic, family and social ties which they have shared with them. It is worth noting that in the previous injunction on the subject, the Muslims had been commanded to launch jihad against the hypocrites and unbelievers. Whereas in the present verse the word qital is used. This latter usage suggests that Muslims should spare no effort in their drive to crush the hypocrites. Likewise, it should also be noted that whereas in the earlier verse, for instance 73, both hypocrites and unbelievers are mentioned, the present verse mentions only the unbelievers. This is so because the hypocrites, whose unbelief had become crystal clear, had no right to claim any relief on grounds of their formal profession to faith and let them find in you sternness. The lenient policy shown the hypocrites so far should now be given up. Know that Allah is with the God-fearing. The note of warning to the Muslims contained in the above verse has two different meanings, and perhaps both are intended. First, the Muslims are warned that making any allowance to the hypocrites in view of their personal, social, and business ties with them is inconsistent with God-fearing behavior. It is not possible to fear God and at the same time have relationships of deep friendship and love with His enemies. If Muslims care for God's support and favor, they should give up those relationships. Second, the Muslims are warned that God's command to be stern towards and fight against the hypocrites should not mean disregard of moral and humanitarian considerations. For, regardless of what they do, Muslims are always required to act within the limits prescribed by God. Transgression of these limits will render them undeserving of God's support.
And whenever a new surah is revealed, some of the hypocrites ask the believers in jest, Whose faith has increased because of this? As for those who believe, it will certainly increase their faith, and they are joyful over that. But those whose hearts are affected with the disease of hypocrisy, every new surah added a fresh abomination to their abomination. They remained unbelievers till their death. Every new surah added a fresh abomination to their abomination. For a detailed discussion of the increase and decrease in faith, hypocrisy and unbelief, see Al-Anfal 8, note 2 above. أَوَلَا يَرَوْنَ أَنَّهُمْ يُفْتَنُونَ فِي كُلِّ عَامٍ مَرَّةً أَوْ مَرَّتَيْنِ ثُمَّ لَا يَتُوبُونَ ثُمَّ لَا يَتُوبُونَ وَلَا هُمْ يَذَّكَّرُونَ Do they not see that they are tried every year once or twice? Yet they neither repent nor take heed. Do they not see that they are tried every year once or twice? Circumstances often arose which made it possible to test the claim of the hypocrites to be believers and invariably their claim was proved hollow. From time to time, for instance, a Quranic injunction would be revealed in opposition to their instinctive desires. Occasionally they would be faced with a demand of faith which was prejudicial to their worldly interests. Sometimes, circumstances would place them in a situation of conflicting loyalties and they were forced to make a clear choice. Did they hold God, God's messenger, and God's religion dearer than their personal, family, and tribal interests? At times, war would break out and one's loyalty was put to the test. To what extent was one prepared to sacrifice life, property, time, and energy for the sake of the religion which one claimed to believe in? On all such occasions, the filth of hypocrisy that lay hidden behind a cloak of false profession to faith came to the surface. In fact, on such occasions when the hypocrites cast aside the obligations of faith, they became more hardened in their hypocrisy. <laughs> And whenever a surah is revealed, they glance at each other as though saying, Is anyone watching? Then they slip away. Allah has turned away their hearts, for they are a people who are bereft of understanding. And whenever a surah is revealed, they glance at each other as though saying, Is anyone watching? Then they slip away. 
Whenever a Suda was revealed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, he recited it at a public gathering of Muslims. While the Prophet, peace be upon him, recited it, the true believers listened to it in rapturous attention. The hypocrites, however, behaved at such gatherings in an altogether different way. They attended these meetings as it was obligatory for every believer to do so, and their absence would have exposed their hypocrisy. Nonetheless, they evinced no interest in the Prophet's recitation, and their presence was only ever half-hearted. Their only concern was to register their physical presence at the gathering, and they would depart at the first opportunity. The above Quranic verse presents a graphic account of their conduct. Allah has turned away their hearts, for they are a people who are bereft of understanding. The Quran demonstrates the utter foolishness of the hypocrites insofar as they were ignorant of their true interests and welfare, oblivious to their salvation, and absolutely ignorant of the great favor God had shown them by revealing the Quran and sending His Prophet, peace be upon Him. Engaged in their trivial pursuits and narrow interests, they could not see that by embracing the true faith, they could assume not only the leadership of all mankind in this life, but also attain eternal felicity in the next. Their behavior deprived them of the opportunity to benefit from the vast, unlimited treasures of faith which could have led them to eternal happiness, success, power, and greatness. The hypocrites were indeed altogether unfortunate to miss this golden opportunity while the true believers availed themselves fully of it. There has come to you a messenger of Allah from among yourselves who is distressed by the losses you sustain who is ardently desirous of your welfare and is tender and merciful to those that believe. Yet, if they should turn away, then tell them, Allah is sufficient for me. There is no God but He. In Him I have put my trust. He is the Lord of the mighty throne.